Hello everybody, and welcome back to, for a time, might be the final episode of Coen Brothers Brothers. Uh, this one we're doing is Hail Caesar, it's 2016. Um, let's introduce ourselves. I'm Abe Epperson, one of your co-hosts. I'm here with, introduce yourself. Michael Swaim. Did you, and, uh, very allergic Michael Swaim. I don't know, can you hear that I'm stuffed up, Abe? A little bit. You're a little stuffy. Okay, then the audience can hear. But sometimes you can only hear it in your own head, you know, and it's not really there. But yeah, yeah there, there's a nasal there. quality. But I you're all right. I snorted snot, so you could. That's the real. Mm-hmm. But mm-hmm. yeah, man. What? So you said for a time, if the Coen Brothers make another movie, are we committed to coming back and relaunching the series? We haven't talked <clears> about <I've>, that. <laughs> well, here's the thing: is they come out with movies every few years so they take their time i doubt they take their time so i feel like we could do like a you know random oh a new movie let's do a you know a coen brothers on it but then we won't have to do it again for many years and i'd figure inevitably when one of them finds this podcast feed and realizes this is the most insightful you know analysis of their work anyone's Mm -hmm. ever done that they'll want to do a reunion episode and we'll consider it yeah, yeah. And they'll want to make more movies because they'll be like, they'll be we like, got to make these guys, put these guys to work. We need more episodes. You know what would be amazing is to actually do an episode where we unpack a Coen Brothers movie that doesn't exist, that we amalgamate from all the tropes that we've come to learn are their bread and butter. We could write a Coen Brothers movie or at least like a treatment. That's for sure. I, That's high praise for us. I would say we're definitely up to the task of writing a review of a Coen Brothers movie that doesn't exist. (laughs) Well, I mean, yeah, if we wrote a treatment of it and then acted like we saw the the thing. But yeah, you're right. That's high praise of us. Well, we're pretty great. So let's use our (laughs) amazing abilities of insight (laughs) and understanding to dive into uh, the three spectra through which we analyze Coen Brothers films. In this case, of course, Mm. Hail Caesar. Mm. Uh, Those spectra are, for the last time, with feeling, pedagogy, (laughs) diegesis. I mixed them up. It's the finale episode and I mixed them up in order. That's diegesis, pedagogy, And uh, what's the third one? I always forget. How did he do that? How did he do that? Um, Becoming less relevant by the second as Arrested Development does not appear to be coming back. (laughs) Yeah, that's true. And speaking of jokes, uh, it's a comedy. Hail Caesar, if you're watching this, if you're listening to this podcast blindly. And uh, and we're going to analyze it. So let's dive into our our first spectrum, Diegesis, which is the stuff that happened in the movie. Yes. Yes, Aber. Yes, I heard you. That's peeping. what we're gonna do. <laughs> I'm gonna interrupt you for a second and just say, for anyone who wants to skip the Hail Caesar portion of this podcast, at the end, Michael and Abe are gonna give you the Cohen picks, meaning we're gonna rank the Cohen brothers for each of us. So that'll we'll do that if you're interested in that, and uh, also we'll announce our next project uh, because obviously we can't do. There's no more Cohen brothers. So uh, yeah. This- anyway, that's it. Great self-promotion. If you ordered a meatball sub but you don't like meatballs, you're welcome to pick the meatballs out and just go to the bread. <laughs> hey, it's the last one. Michael. But they know okay. that. Wait, although earlier you said, so are we, if they do another one, we have to come but back? But if you're, and I'm. Do we have oh, to, are no. we obligated to cover new Coen Brothers movies? 
I don't know, man. I thought we could because it's not that hard. No, it's a pleasure. It's a joy. But uh, yeah, and it's and they only come out. Yeah, if you don't want to be obligated, we may or may not. Okay, you covered your Also, ass. <laughs> I'll say it here without blowing anyone's spot up per se. Uh, I know someone who knows someone who knows the Cohen brothers, and I got to talk to the someone who knows the Cohen brothers, and I'll just say they said that they know the Cohen brothers well, and the Cohen brothers are done and will announce their retirement soon. Um, mm. and if that gets me in trouble, so be it. <laughs> but I heard that. I heard that from being a Hollywood guy. Um, so we'll see. I, on the one hand, I was heartbroken to hear that. On the other hand, I was like, okay, good. Our podcast will stand forever as the totality that of is, the Cohen brothers output. <laughs> that's, that's a very strange takeaway, but that's cool. <laughs> uh, yeah. So, uh, where were we? Diegesis. How do you do that? Oh, right. Diegesis. Okay. So, first thing I'll say, because as people who have listened to the show know, and people who listen to Small Beans, I think, know, we're not big into just telling you if you should watch the thing or not. Like, fuck that. Or I, it's so mm. stupid. Everything, art is so subjective. We're, we're more into telling you, like, what, what it was like for us and trying to provide insights that will enrich your experience of engaging with that piece of art should you choose to. And in this case... Because it's famously not a hit Coen Brothers movie and we're ending on it, I do want to provide a quick capsule sort of review up top in the diegesis section, which is basically to say that I had the same experience with this one that I did with Intolerable Cruelty, which is, and Lady Killers for that matter, which is uh, in every case they were coming off a very serious toned film that was a huge hit. And it's very clear that they decided to just have some fun and make a comedy. And I think that those ones always end up missing with the general audience because like after no country or I'm mixing up the order, but you know, for example, or like, let's say after Fargo, how are you going to go ahead and do intolerable cruelty? It, Uh and yet I admire that they, I think the Coen brothers get a bad rap when they don't take themselves seriously because they're so obviously brilliant that we want them to say important stuff. So like when Mm -hmm. I saw this movie, I left the theater feeling very disappointed and like, whatever, you know, they can't all be winners and watching it again with a critical detached eye for this podcast going, but is it good though? Just analyze it as a film. This is a fucking really funny, well-made movie. And it, it, like, it strengthened yeah. my resolve that our base assumption in this show is, well, it's a Coen Brothers movie, so it's better than 95% of other movies. That still holds. And even Lady Killers, which I was scared to watch because everyone always shat on it my whole life. I watched it and I was like, it's good, though. It's really good. It's just mm-hmm. not as good as No Country for Old Men. But that's such no. a high standard. Um, yeah. Inside Llewellyn Davis, which is 2013, they hadn't made something for three years. So in 2016, they come out with Hail Caesar. And you're like, oh, three years. A Cohen Brothers. Yeah, I see exactly. why your expectation is to get almost all of the aspects of the artist in one film. You're like, it's got to have something cool and crazy like No Country. It's got have no sometimes they do burn after reading where it's just like uh you know the whole point is what the fuck it's fine yeah let them make movies <laughs> so with that mindset 
this movie fucking tears ass. Like it's very it funny and clever and smart. It's fucking great. So let's get into it. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I'll do the uh, opening volley and then take over whenever you feel like it. But you got it. Uh, because it's a broad comedy, I think diegesis will be bulky and then pedagogy will be pretty simple. Man who yeah. wasn't there, this is not. <laughs> Right. There is some interesting stuff, though, I will say. I yes. Have, so There's always some pedagogy, but yeah. There's always something. But for Diegesis, it opens on a, a shot of Jesus, uh, conflating Jesus with the Hollywood studio system. It's sort of this opening image that just establishes the uh, premise, which is that this is the Coen brothers' love letter to the uh, their calling. They were put on this earth, and they feel like film's the most important thing to do, and that's why they do it, and they were blessed enough to get to do it like to mm -hmm. the fullest degree. And in a lot of ways, I think this movie is, they're like, thank you for that, and their meditation on how cool that is. So it literally opens on, like, religion but our main character eddie mannix is represents hollywood and he's there and it's conflating the two and eddie mannix is josh brolin who ain't never not acted the shit out of any part he was given so obviously he's great uh it's hard to watch this back to back with true grit and even realize it's the same guy he is a chameleon type actor um and he's in the confessional booth crying so you know it's genuine that's the thing is it's very important he's not phoning it in in fact the priest later in the movie will be like you confessed 27 hours ago my son like it's really too often right yeah the, the priest is very like all right it's, you know, it's so late right now man and also like you're fine you're doing fine you're a good guy as far as i can tell but um yeah. brolin is confessing because he lied to his wife about smoking he says his job is so stressful that he keeps finding himself smoking even though he's trying to quit and he feels bad because he tells his wife he quit then we get the voice of this narrator that's going to carry us throughout the film. Abe, I'm going to lean on you for this. Who's the voice of that narrator? It's someone really My famous. Michael Gambon. That was, that's Michael Gambon? Yeah. The thief from The Cook, The Thief, His Wife, and Her yeah. Lover? Wow. Fucking Albus Dumbledore. <laughs> oh, my God. I'm sorry. But I... I didn't have any actorly connection to Michael Gambone. Like I had no appreciation of him as an actor uh -huh. until very recently when we were tasked with watching the cook, the thief, his wife and her lover. So that was my only understanding of who that man is. He's the second <laughs> Dumbledore. That's the same guy. It's so much shit. Have you seen like layer cake? He has no, but had dude, that's like, now I'm imagining Dumbledore like force feeding Ron Weasley duck shit. Yes, <laughs> that's why it's insane. Uh, yeah, it's the, he has. I don't want to even get into it because I could talk about it for too long. He's right. been. He's had like three careers. He started young, and he's had like like young sexy man to like like age, middle aged like, horrible age, person. Like, to like, yeah, he's just all over and the now place. He's, he's had like, like multiple old, dignified guy. <laughs> yeah. yeah, exactly, exactly. And now he's just doing. Now he's narrating as if it's spoken from like God, or it's the movie. Well, it's interesting, but it's also yeah. the narrator of Hail Caesar, the movie exactly. within the movie. My, but he's yeah. also the narrator of the movie. Michael Gambon narrates both Hail Caesar the movie we're watching and hail Caesar, the movie they're making that the movie hail Caesar we're watching is about. Yes. Um, and I just want to point out Eddie Mannix 
uh, one of his first lines is while he's trying to explain to the cops that a starlet is not in fact there getting her photo taken churning butter, which I guess is scandalous. <laughs> but mm-hmm. he goes like it's the fifties. He goes, uh, no, no, no. This isn't what's her name. This isn't really her dirndl. And I just, <laughs> I appreciate the Coen brothers so much for keeping language alive that I never would have been exposed to otherwise. I had to look it up. D-I-R-N-D-L. And it's like Austin Powers saying, that's not my bag, baby. But dirndl, what a great phrase. No, that's not my dirndl. <laughs> yeah. Or that's my dirndl. <laughs> oh, that is my dirndl. Oh, yeah. yeah. Trip hop uh, Skrillex. Yeah, that's my dirndl. Um, that's my dirndl, baby. But anyway, uh, the first, so Mannix is a fixer. Brolin is a fixer. For Capital Pictures. And Capital Pictures, which you imagine is like Columbia or Paramount analog. And he, the first scene we get is it's 5 a.m., a starlet the studio owns the rights to. So if you're unfamiliar, just just for the young kids listening, uh, back in the day, the system was different, and studios would own your likeness, and they would really just tell you what movie you're in next, and and you don't. It's like working at a factory, but it's a movie factory. Yeah, it was very yeah. interesting way before we realized like, oh, we should have agents and managers, and the actors should read scripts and decide what to do. It was and just unions. Like, we own you. Do this movie now, and yep. you can't be seen smoking or you can't be seen pregnant because you're a starlet. So. Uh, it's 5 a.m. and he finds this starlet taking some sexy photos, churning butter. And he fucking slaps the shit out of her. Yeah, he slaps. He scares the photographer away because he's like, get the fuck out of here. You're doing this shit. And then he slaps her and tells her to use a fake name real quick because the police are coming. Yeah. And, uh, and then she doesn't even get the gist of, like, he just takes care of everything. She's just there and she... You see how it's uh, like kind of a predatory system, even though one of the greater points of this movie is that like it took we we took care of it, didn't we? You know, and stuff like that. Well, no. And yeah. Well, it's interesting. I would argue that Eddie Mannix is presented as exactly acculturated to his time. And yeah, not, exactly. It's in, because they are. The Coen brothers are depicting their perception of the golden age of Hollywood. And I thought it was pretty cool actually how they resist gilding it in the way that they really are nostalgic for this time i mean these are the guys that made the hudsucker proxy capra movies in the golden age of hollywood do matter to them they're very tarantino-ish they're fucking film nerds and they like classic movies they mean it genuinely but at the same time they resist that human nature thing that so many of us have where we're like those were the good days they're like no i mean a lot of stuff sucked about it it was racist and misogynist and shit so eddie mannix is not good He's good in that he serves film and film is good, but they really don't embellish him or make him super sympathetic. He's a guy no. in the 50s, so he's diffident to his wife and he slaps women around. <laughs> like, it's interesting he, that he, they yeah, don't gild the lily. He's, uh, he's effective. He's a fixer. He goes in and he solves problems like this fixer daddy for all of us to make <laughs> yeah. sure that the things and so that the, the world of capital pictures just keeps running. Uh, he's kind of like uh, what's he's kind of like what, what a lot of us want out of a God. <laughs> Weird. Huh? Uh, yeah. Who is often. Well, the deist God, which, by the way, Ben Franklin believed in, which is the idea that the God, clockmaker. the clockmaker God and the most 
notable iconic recurring shot in this film is Eddie Mannix's watch. And that's mm-hmm. twofold to show you that this movie takes place roughly in I don't mean real time like 24 does, but I mean, it takes place over a 29 hour period, which is pretty interesting because mm-hmm. you re- look back and realize, holy shit, a lot of shit happened that day. And um, I think it also is a reference to the clockwork nature of the studio, life itself, the universe and the God that the Cullen brothers gotta... perceive to exist. Right. Like if there is a God. Just keep churning. It's like the, that butter. The gods just churn in the butter and seeing what comes yeah. out. Yeah. We're getting... Uh, you can tell where this is going to go in pedagogy, but uh, let's keep going. Okay. So it cuts uh, from him, from us learning, like, this is what this guy's about. He gets mm-hmm. shit done, and he feels guilty about it, uh, what's necessary to get shit done. Um, then, it, you know, your classic white guy. <laughs> then it cuts yeah. to uh, an in-media or, like, diegetic, so to speak, shot of the film hail caesar and it slowly pans out and we realize it's eddie mannix watching rushes of hail caesar so this is also an interesting time because this is a time in hollywood where the fixer who you send to slap starlets around also gets input creative input on the film but mainly yeah that's a weird thing mainly but he's like a producer i guess so it's in the interest of they trust him to basically produce meaning connect with people who would be interested in the film and make sure it's not going to make the studio look bad he's not like judging the acting as much as he is judging like will this offend christians um because uh-huh. it's the story of jesus christ's life um, but jesus christ is shown through the eyes of the roman empire and if you're familiar with film history it's clearly spartacus so they're making spartacus hail caesar is spartacus <laughs> yes and i love that during the rushes he's watching, of course, not all the sequences are finished. So we get introduced to George Clooney, who's going to play our, uh, God, I'm sorry, I can't pull his name, uh, Kirk Clancy Douglas. Brown? Oh, sorry. He's I playing you were our talking Kirk about Douglas the, uh, analog in Spartacus, which made me realize. Uh, Baird Whitlock. It makes, he is really is our generation's like. Kirk Douglas. Like, they have that same pain oh, yeah. face and shit. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> yeah, there's a lot of analogs. You yeah. Know? He's a bit a little Cary Grant, a little Kirk Douglas, but for our oh, time, yeah. yeah. Definitely. And, uh, Definitely. Uh, but anyway, th- I love that it cuts to the scene where they cut to God, like he's looking at God, and it shows the reverse shot where you said she should see God, but it's yes. just black <laughs> frame and it says divine presence to be shot, meaning like we haven't filmed this yet. But I have to believe there's some meta like joke to the idea of like we're gonna shoot God <laughs> like divine presence. Yeah, we'll figure it out. Shot. We'll figure it out. It's on a timeline, but we'll figure <laughs> yeah. it out. And, but we are we do find out in a few scenes that the reason is because the studio is worried about how how to offensive God. yeah uh, God will be. So there are they're holding off to re- shoot that sequence and and many no- notable sh- shots of uh, Jesus. Right. Uh, just like, you know, um, so that there's no one is offended. Don't offend you know? the blue hairs. So, uh, yeah. indeed, the next scene is a walk and talk where the only real big takeaway is that his secretary is just as competent as him and is like his gal Friday. And he tells her, bring as many religious folks as possible, like representing as many different faiths uh, to a meeting uh-huh. so they can watch the cut and tell me what they think. She says, okay. Uh- <laughs> Another really cool thing is that I know well, he de- he actually solves three problems in that walk and talk, and yes. it's like a minute. He's constantly uh, there's a rained out production. Go ahead, go ahead. 
there's a rained out production that turns that he turns into a B shot unit for another pitcher that needs rain. So it's like he's solving problems thinking outside of the box. It's not like he's solving a problem for one movie. He's solving like, well, if they shoot because we have like eight pitchers going on right now, maybe he shoots just like shots of, you know, like rain and stuff like that, or get some B shots of like hills and stuff like that with being rained on for that pitcher. And then also he, uh, it's foreshadowing that he's going to meet uh, Scarlett Johansson because there is a pregnant actress who's apparently causing hiccups on set. Yeah. And I think that that really is the Coen's providing insight into the filmmaking process and an aspect that you and I talk about a lot that most fans who just watch movies don't appreciate being on set, especially for a low budget, like when we did our feature, Kill Me Now, it's striking how much the skill of filmmaking is actually complex real-world problem-solving in real time. And the most joyous moments that stick in your memory from feature sets are often things like, hey, remember when we needed that shot, but the crane guy couldn't show up because he is class C license expired, but we realized that we could hire local rock climbers to climb up the face of the thing with their uh, equipment and shoot it that way. Like yeah. solving problems is filmmaking because shit always yeah. goes wrong and it, it really is a key part of it. So yeah, you'll see a recurring motif of Eddie Manic solving problems, not like, oh, what should the shot be? Yes, that's a part of filmmaking, but he's really in the shit with the problems like, oh, the actor showed up hungover and can't do the scene. Okay, well, we could shoot this boom guy from behind. He has the same haircut. Yeah, yeah we we'll <laughs> use the stunt like that. Yeah. And he does it with the uh, zest of like Paul Newman in Hudsucker Proxy where there's a certain speed and cadence to everything he's sure, doing. Sure, sure. You don't get the sense that he's maniacal or evil behind it he's just like and then this happens and this happens and then it, that walk and talk ends with and now it's time for and he like they're he's finishing his secretary sentence he's like yeah. time to call new york no in fact they go uh, out because he knows that at 8 a.m he always has a call to new york yes they go out of their way to make him um as a not necessarily sympathetic because he does bad shit but um you can tell he's has a conscience in the societal sense he's ridden with guilt he wants to do the, yeah. all the right things which he's, is he's like a greater good kind of guy he's not like paul newman he actually cares about serving something and he feels like he's, he's not he's trying to do greedy. good things yeah <laughs> in fact based off of how we think of hollywood producers when we do later in the film cut to his home with allison pill mm -hmm. It is a very – like it is classic suburban home. He's not in it for the money no. because he doesn't make a lot of money. He's like living in a small kitchen. Just it's, – it's, it's very reverse of what you'd expect and more close to I guess what I would expect out of 50s. Or people who are solving problems like this would probably in today's day and age be given mansions, you know? That's, right, but this that's guy is like, goes. whatever, I'm just a regular schmo. I clock in, I clock out, I pride myself on getting the shit done. Yeah. <laughs> Doesn't defend the 50s sentiment uh, for a lot of, you know, immoral kind of just uh, justifications, but it does paint a picture of 1950. Yes. Uh, all right, moving us along. Then he's in his office on the phone. He's talking to Mr. Skank, who is a mysterious... They love this trope, man. He's the he's yeah, the um, Wizard of the Oz, essentially. Man. He's the great man that you never even see, but the orders descend from him. He's Charlie to the angels. Um, and he's he basically, the rabbi in yeah, Serious Man. Yes. Uh, he's Sid Musburger. He's wearing Hudsucker. And he says... Mm -hmm. uh, 
One of our actors dropped out of our prestige picture, Merrily We Dance, which is such a funny name for uh, a movie from this era. Merrily We Dance. Uh, There was a movie from this era called They Shoot Horses, Don't They? Like, I just love this era of titling films. Yeah. um, So they say, take our guy Hobie Doyle and move him onto that picture. And Eddie Mannix, because he's a great functionary, briefly says he's also Waylon Smithers. He's a that's a good touchstone is Waylon Smithers. Um, he says, I just need you to know that's a bad idea. Like he basically says, Hobie Doyle's not right for that part. But as soon as Mr. Skank says, well, you know, we have no choice. We got to do that. He goes, absolutely, sir. You're right. I'll get it done. <laughs> and that's the gist of that scene. He's so well mannered. It's kind of a it kind of throws you. A little bit because for a in a movie where everyone is so like being told what they're doing and like kind of um oh he's not a a diva and everyone else he's not a diva he's not like like fast talking you know kind of guy who's going to like do what the stereotypical hollywood producer which is more of what we've been seeing where they're like all business he's like very well mannered he's blue collar he seems out of place in that old hollywood he's very genuine and thankful whereas everyone else is more or less cold fast talking and like ruthless in a way yeah um he's also the best cowboy we've ever seen oh who hobie yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah. So moving on, it cuts to, again, of course, a repeated motif of the film is cutting right into pitch perfect. Like, no one could do it better. It truly is remarkable. Pitch perfect impressions of films from this period that don't exist, but this is exactly what they're like if you've watched a lot of these films. It's what they wish they were. Because the stunts and stuff are so impressive. That's true. It's even that yes. it's almost a circus act, and we did have those kind of pictures back then. But I'll just say, but as film nerds, you harder. have to grant, like, on every level, the attention to detail yes. gives film nerds like it makes our clits hard. Like it's, it's ridiculously it's, it's on the choice point. of the lenses, <laughs> the fake backgrounds. I mean, there was a shot earlier in the opening sequence with Hail Caesar showing the movie within the movie where it's like this very ugly mat. Like, but yes. it's, it's so I mean, it's meant to look glorious and it, I guess it does. But like to our eyes now, it's it's so hilarious that, that we got away with this kind of stuff yeah. in film. And, and think, the same thing mm-hmm. goes for the cowboy pictures. And I think Tarantino is going to come up frequently in this film, particularly. I think it's so interesting that Once Upon a Time in a Hollywood just came out and it's getting so much notice and there's so many parallels here. Um, but it is also, and I'll get to that more in pedagogy, but all I want to say on the Tarantino front right now is that, that it's the same way you appreciated in Grindhouse, how you're like, even the credits looked like the old credits. Like it's... It's just perfect, so I won't belabor it, but we cut into an example of one of Hobie, what's his last name, Miller, Dawson? Uh, Hobie Doyle. Hobie Doyle. One of Hobie Doyle's pictures, and he does what they call dust pictures, which we now know to just mean Western movies, and mm-hmm. they do- He's a dust man. Yeah, they do shots where he is uh, basically the Lone Ranger, saving people and doing stunts on his horse, Whitey, and- uh that's all i'm gonna say about that for now we cut unless you interrupt me uh but otherwise we cut back to and this is where it starts getting interesting to me because the coen brothers are always one level more sophisticated than like a basic movie they do this thing where they really do play with 
is this footage in scene? Meaning repeatedly throughout this movie, you're watching footage. It's like adaptation by Charlie Kaufman. You're watching yeah. footage of, I'm sorry, Schenectady, New York, not adaptation. You're watching footage of people on a set shooting a thing. So based on the distance the camera is away and whether you're seeing boom operators or not and what angle we're at, very sophisticated, nuanced details of film grammar are letting you know whether you're watching people doing a scene that they're doing or you're watching mm -hmm. people on a set, but they're not filming right now. And it's a real quote unquote scene in this movie or you're watching like a mix of the two. And this is the first time they really fuck with you because it cuts to Wayne Knight of Jurassic Park and Seinfeld fame, Newman, walking mm -hmm. into frame in costume with extras in the background framed in such a way that you first think Wayne Knight looks suspicious. What's he doing? And then enough time <laughs> passes that you go, Oh, he must be acting suspicious because they're filming a scene of Hail Caesar and he's suspicious in the scene. And you see him go up to a goblet and put a packet of poison in it. And that's so silly or like, that's such a trope that you're like, that is what it is. Okay. They're filming Hail Caesar. Then the director actually probably a second unit director walks on and goes, why are you over here? You're supposed to be reclining, playing the liar. And you suddenly realize, no, we are watching an extra who is in costume on set really Doing a put crime. poison in yeah. the prop goblet. <laughs> and I love that the assistant director is like, I'm just no, recline. Like it's still got the um the typical Cohen brothers like like love of word choice because like it want he doesn't want him to sit with the liar he wants him to recline with the liar they like and word then it ends with like I yeah. got my eye on you <laughs> because in this world extras which I think might have actually been how it used to be but it's kind of fucked up they would extras would come up and pose for the director all in mass for like bigger scenes and stuff mm -hmm. and have to sit there for who knows how long. And if you moved out of place, because at any time the director and the uh, A team, like the, the the first team, sorry, would come in uh, and they would start performing. So because of that, they had to uh, like if you had to hold a pose, you would do that for hours. If like I don't know, the actor oh, was gone. Wow. But because that would never happen, we, we're still thinking about it in terms of like modern day cultures where there's divas and stuff like that. People weren't really allowed to be a diva, or they would just be fired. Yeah. Like that was the because they needed to make so many pictures so quickly. There, there was only like a few studios, but the same number of pictures if you think about it, and that's like crazy. Yeah, uh, yeah. No, for the record, that way. nowadays. A PA tells the extras, oh, so-and-so is in the makeup chair. You have 45 minutes. <laughs> they don't have to just stand there forever. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I think it's only important because a lot of this movie later discusses uh, the power dynamics of societies. And right. this is this is a part of that. So that I just wanted to hint at that. Yeah. So uh, whatever. So they drug George Clooney, Baird Whitlock. And by the mm -hmm. time he goes to his trailer... He's all dizzy, and they knock on his trailer door, and he passes out, and they kidnap him. Yeah. And that's the inciting incident of the quote-unquote plot plot, which barely yeah. matters. But the general arc of the plot of this film, so to speak, is that Baird Whitlock is, goes missing. There's a kidnapping. Day. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um, but meanwhile, Eddie Mannix, none the wiser, is meeting with the religious people, and... 
this, I would argue, this is one of the, so this is one of the first scenes where when I watched this the first time, I thought, eh, it's a weak Coen Brothers movie. And the reason is I wanted something like Fargo that was really spare and elegant and on point and had a, you know, like it was an arrow driving at a certain insight. And uh-huh. I just realized this is not that. Fucking get over yourself. Relax. It's a comedy. Comedies meander. And I would argue that this is a sequence where the Coen brothers were just like, we have a lot of good religion jokes. We want to get them out. We're going to live in this scene for a minute until all of our religion jokes are gotten out. Go fuck yourself. Like this, this, the plot of this film is not paced in the way that an inside Lewin Davis or a serious man is. Um, so we get this kind of rambling scene where all the, uh, religious figures from each different sect talk about the film and there's fucking killer jokes all throughout and that's all it is. It's just a joke machine. Um, yeah. One of my favorites is when they finally get around to he goes, so do you think there's anything in here that will offend anyone? And the Coptic Christian, uh, you know, who would have like the long white beard and the very severe black dress says, I have a problem with the movie. How is he going to jump from one chariot to another while he's going full speed? It doesn't make sense. <laughs> so he's like, okay, that's but that's more of like a plot hole. We don't right. Really yeah, yeah, the that. Greek, the Greek Orthodox patriarch. That's him, is the like, Greek Orthodox guy. Yeah, he's he's like essentially just like saying like, but like, what if like I don't know? I thought it was too loud or something he's like, like that. He's like pitching to the film. Yeah, <laughs> and of course the Protestants and the Catholics are at each other's throats uh, most of the time because they're have little nuanced discussions about like when he's asking the portrayal of Christ they immediately jump to what Christ is they don't think about the portrayal because that's where the problem is they're the problem like, is that oh, they all Christ disagree the about Trinity. the fundamental oh, no he's not oh fuck you he's a yeah. polarizing figure <laughs> yeah. and the Jewish rabbi is constant the he's the my favorite <laughs> he's the best uh, of course it's going to come from the Cohen brothers right, the that Cohen's they're going right. to the rabbi how fucking hilarious Great Jewish he's show. creating a plethora of arguments against all the other faiths pointing out holes in all of their logics but ultimately says like and how about you how do you think about it i have an opinion <laughs> it's just such a great like opinions. you've only been opinions man <laughs> and man if you like yeah my extended family on my mom's side is all jewish and loves jewish humor and it's funny that they did like a sequence of jews jokes in, yeah. in the perfect like that's such a classic formula for a jewish yiddish joke is at the end yeah, him going is. eh I haven't an opinion, but um, I want to quote some of his best moments because the rabbi steals the scene. He goes, uh, they're, they're arguing about whether Jesus is God or he's the son of God. Who's the Holy Ghost? And he goes, I'm confused, Eddie Mannix. And the rabbi goes, there's a reason you're confused. These men are screwballs. Oh, God has children now? And what, a pet? A collie maybe? No, no, no. God is a bachelor and very angry. <laughs> and, <laughs> and then I love the traditional like Protestant Christian guy goes, no, no, no. He used to be angry because that's the difference between yeah, the old that's and new the fundamental difference yeah. yes. and uh um the rabbi goes oh he used to be what he got over it and he goes see you sh- you worship the god of another age a god with no love in his heart and he goes that's not true he likes jews <laughs> yeah <laughs> so, just the chosen people storyline boiled down in that way is so funny to me um, it's a great scene, but it wraps up with nothing really accomplished. Again, I think it was just a joke machine scene, um, mm-hmm. and cuts to for my money. 
I do think this movie is at risk of being inside baseball, and I think that's one of the reasons it's up its own ass, which we'll get to in pedagogy. But if you do work in the industry, one of the funniest moments in the entire goddamn movie is Hobie Boyle. Doyle? Hobie Doyle, who Doyle. is genuinely a cowboy, like ranch hand type guy, simple guy. That's why he was cast in this role eating a plate of baked beans on set and a PA comes up and says, okay, Hobie studio says you're done with this movie. You're reporting back to the lot for a different movie. Oh, how come? Uh, they're completely changing your image. Oh, okay. <laughs> That's yeah. incredible to me. And it's so emblematic of what the studio system was like versus what life is like now. And then he goes, uh, Oh, and you're escorting Carlotta Valdez on a date tonight. And he goes, how come? I don't know her. And he goes, oh, well, uh, the studio's changing her image. And he goes, okay. And he picks okay. a bean out of his teeth. And that's the whole scene. <laughs> that's the whole scene. He's just being told how to be, how to be a person. Your life who's is dating. Now. Yeah. That's capital. That's capital pictures, baby. Yeah. Um, side note, Carlotta Valdez just made me just reminded me how great Harvey Danger is as a musical group and how underrated the <laughs> good song called Carlotta Valdez. So anyway, um, personally, I, cause I have problems. It's my problem. I viscerally hate seeing Scarlett Johansson's face in things, especially in films that I like and I respect the makers uh -huh. of. I think she's awful. She's good in this though. She's, she's okay. Um, and I want you. Yeah, to she's an Esther type, Williams type, and it's like she kills that yeah, performance. She does. I gotta like eat she crow does. on this. But man, when it cut to her face, I was like, ugh. ugh yeah, ugh. yeah. But um, can you take this part? Because my Scarjo fatigue. I'll take <laughs> as long as you want, man. I'm I'm enjoying the ride, but I can pick up any time. Yeah. Go. So Scarjo appears, and it kind of starts with a um, wonderful synchronized swimming vignette. And I don't know if you noticed, but when the um, <clears throat> when the whale does like kind of comes out. And breaches. like they do a version of uh, it, bre yeah. Be what is it? Breaching is that Breaching. what whales do? Who did all the? Yeah. Uh, it, this is a reference to a particular guy that made this style of film famous too. Is it Bob Fosse? Mm -hmm. Someone like that? Not Bob Fosse. I don't Tommy know Toon? who it was. <laughs> right. Yeah. But I can't um, remember. You know, if you've seen old films, there's this spectacular. There was this yeah. subgenre of like water spectaculars, people flipping and doing Aquatic synchronized films. swimming. Yeah. Yeah is what they call it in the movie. And that's kind of true. I don't know how big it was at the time because I never really saw aquatic It was films. a niche genre that existed. Yeah, exactly. That's all. And that's it what ScarJo like is like the queen of, essentially. Um, but yeah, if you notice when the uh, the whale breaches, it kind of looks like a pinball. Or a pin. Uh, like, it pinball. looks like a, a bowling ball and a pin. Oh. Uh, I think they're referencing because they have a very very framed very uh similarly in the big lebowski uh dream sequence and the composition is like almost identical oh it's just one of those things that i was like oh they're quoting themselves there i didn't uh, think of but that anyway. connection but i did immediately think it put me in the mind of the dream sequences both from big lebowski and hudsucker right um, right it's yeah. amazing that in this sequence they do, like you said, it's like what the movie wished it could be in the 50s. They do pro right. probably the most spectacular aqua, whatever you said, type of film that's ever mm -hmm. been put to film. Like they top all the real ones because they have more modern technology and shit. Mm -hmm. But at the same time, it feels exactly correct. It feels like one of those old movies. 
And at the same time, it's a beautiful deconstruction of the elements of that that makes you appreciate why they appreciate something that is objectively like dated and silly. So this shit is dated and silly, but at the same time by watching this, the fact that they did an uh, overhead shot that just holds forever that makes the what you're looking at almost seem abstract like at first it's just shapes and shit it makes you appreciate in a way that i just find so powerful i actually found myself thinking you know what it's silly synchronized swimming but it is beautiful in its way like There's they're value of yeah, pictures they're, yeah. they're able to mock an art form and show it as cute and quaint and legitimately show why it's beautiful through novel deconstruction of that art form. They're and the that's best. that that and but that is that is the crux of the movie. Like in one hand they're giving you scenes that are the they're almost juxtaposing them directly next to each other as we'll continue with this the scene with Scarjo is a great example in her vignette. The value picture in one hand that you just said uh and then at the other hand it gives you a look that it's like Clearly, you're seeing the sausage sausage being made, and it's kind of a horrible tax scene, kind of ruins it kind of version of it. And so you're seeing both. You're seeing like, oh, but that is a nice picture, but here's what it takes to make it. Yeah. Uh, so Scar- I think the Joe, motto of this movie could be, flowers grow from dirt. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. And there's you look no further than ScarJo literally being like a, a mermaid-like goddess. <laughs> a and she like comes out sea. of... <laughs> Yeah, from the sea. And she, like, comes out of the water in a shot because they reversed it, and she's not wet and stuff like that. So her hair is perfect. And then they call cut. And then she says, like, I forget, but she basically goes, God damn it, starts swearing up a storm. She just says, damn it. Uh, yeah. yeah. And then she, uh, they take off her, what they, uh, she calls her ass, which is the mermaid part of her. And then she has a conversation, uh, she has a conversation with Mannix where what we learn is that she's unwed and she's pregnant and it's a publicity issue for the studio. So she needs to marry someone or this needs to be resolved. And she's discussed with Mannix that in order to keep her image and save and save face amongst the, uh, like the studio and therefore like America, uh, she needs to, to marry save someone America. She has to be married yeah. before her baby comes out. Um, so just from a wokeness point of view, it must be said, like from our standards, Mannix is a piece of shit. Like he's literally for money enforcing the patriarchy. He's like, you're pregnant. Yeah, that's you the gotta, system. You got to be in the kitchen because you're pregnant. Yeah, essentially. Yeah. she. I think there's a line that says like, but the reason is because like, uh, America thinks that you're innocent, and she goes like, "Yeah." And he's that's like, true. "America needs that." That is my image. You have to be surely like, temple can't, so because we can't have that's this. what America needs to believe in to win the war yeah. against the and Nazis she, like, or whatever. Yeah, yeah. And they're also—it's this weird thing because they're also a part of religion, uh, like this religious-based system, uh, where moral and ethical codes are dictated by religion. And because of that, you get this kind of weird thing where it's like, like getting rid of the child isn't anything. Isn't on the table and stuff like that. Oh, that like doesn't come up. It would never even occur to either of them. Yeah, they would never occur to either of them, even though they're just. Dis- that you would. Know, you're right. Like from an efficiency standpoint, if she just got an abortion, that would have. In solved today's everything. world, if right, if you, yeah, I mean, yeah, her choice. But like in this world, she can't. So even though they're depicted as monsters, they're not. 
they find for some reason that if they were to like, I right. think that that's one of those interesting omissions I, because of it's the 1950s hypocrisy. Honestly, the Coen brothers, another skill in their quiver of arrows is they are clear eyed, which is what I was getting with at with them not yes. embellishing the like, yeah, they're really good at observing reality and just translating it in a way that feels like mostly true. Where you're like, yep, that's a good balance of like, that's what that guy would be like. That's the set of beliefs he's working off of. It doesn't mean yeah. I agree with all his beliefs, but I see why he's a product of his time. That's what he would do. They're just good, man. They're good. And um, that's why they choose actors who are able to inhabit the roles. They yeah. give them dense roles, but they give, they give them to people. It's like, they know who can do it because they talk to them about every aspect of the. Yes. Uh, that's just how they work. They just talk it all out. Uh, so meanwhile, Hobie arrives at a stage picture in the best scene in the film, in my opinion. Everyone's favorite scene. Yeah. Ray finds his directing. Voldemort. It's a horrifying. It's fucking Voldemort, what? you guys. Fucking Voldemort, Voldemort number two, Harry Potter. this prestige picture. Yeah. Uh, this is a horrifying scene I can speak as a director, and I'm sure it is as an actor. It's the most awkward. It's so wonderful because it points at something that's, yes, inside baseball, but it's so true about humanity in general, just when people do not see eye to eye. It's probably the best scene in the movie, and it all it's all centered around this one sentence, would it tour, or would it were so simple? <laughs> But of course, he says it in kind of like a British accent, so it kind of sounds like, what it was so simple. What it was so simple. And it's just this divide. The scene is essentially just over and over and over saying this because that's the line that Hobie needs to say. And Hobie's this, you know, John Wayne kind of talking person. And he's trying to get into like a Howard Hawks or like a higher echelon director who directs dramas. Uh, and the dramas are usually seen as like the higher class pictures. They just don't understand each other's words or worlds. And so he walks in like John Wayne and on the other side, Ray Fiennes is just does not see how he doesn't understand. Just say it exactly the way I say it. And he actually gives him a line reading at one point. And they're trying to basically see eye to eye, trying to say, get him to say the line and he just can't say it. And they do something like three or four takes on it. Uh, there's a lot of amazing things going on in this scene as well, uh, because as Hobie tries to mimic Lorenz's, which is the name of the Ray Fiennes character, over-the-top gravitas, uh, <clears throat> they have at one point in Abbott and Costello, who's on first moment, where Hobie, where Hobie keeps getting corrected uh, by Lorenz that his name, when he says, like, now Hobie, or he says Mr. Doyle. And so at first they're Mr. Doyle and Mr. Lorenz, but the problem is that Hobie doesn't understand Lorenz as a phrase or as a word that's unfamiliar to him. So he keeps calling him Lawrence. Now, the funny thing is that it happens to be that later Hobie is then corrected when he says Mr. Loret or he says Mr. Lorenz and he says, you know what? You can call me by my Christian name, my first name, which happens to be Lawrence. <laughs> so his actual name is Lawrence Lorenz. And this is just adding to the uh, absurdity that Hobie can't even understand why Lawrence, like what, what's going on with his name. He's just out of water. He's a fish out of water. All he'd want to do is just go back into the dust pitchers and like lasso someone. That's all. That's a skill set, and they're trying to make it. What it so simple, <laughs> trying to make it uh, work out, and they just can't. I think it's key that Hobie is not. Hobie is very much trying his hardest and wants to do a good job. He's not John Waning the scene in the way that like. 
again, no one's a diva in this. And I no. think that that's why it works is like Hobie totally wants to give the director what he wants, as most actors would. And again, they play with at the beginning of this sequence, your understanding of what is real and what is really real, because they cut to this drawing room scene and it's framed in such a way that, again, it could be a scene from the film and you think it is. And I want people to pay attention to pacing here because the Coen brothers know that if they linger on it for a while, your brain will have time to work and settle and decide, oh, this yeah. is going on. So they intentionally lengthen these shots of everyone looking bored and you're wondering what's going on. And then Hobie walks in and you think, oh, this is the scene in Merrily We Dance. And then it turns out, no, he's just using the stage door. And this was a bunch of actors sitting on set waiting bored for Hobie to come over from lunch and get mm -hmm. here. Yep. Um, it's the second time they've done it. But yeah, they, the but first time they again. made it, they, yeah, they switched the expectation. They set up the expectation that, oh, this is actually, no, they're just extras waiting. Oh no, they're not extras waiting. Oh, Wayne yes, Knight is poisoning are. someone. Yeah, yeah, and exactly. then in this one, they're like doing the reverse. We're like, oh, this is the pitcher actually. Oh no, they're just extras waiting. Yeah. And I just think people because the wood that a tour so simple is edited so expertly and acted so expertly, uh, and the basic joke being there that I that he Mr. Lorenz doesn't understand that Hobie is imitating his accent. Like that's what he doesn't understand. Yeah. Cause he keeps saying twa cause he's British. What do you see? And what so do you Hobie see? goes, okay, would that a twa so simple? And he goes, why, why are you saying this twa twa? Would that a twa so simple? And he goes, would that a twa so simple? Um, <laughs> but I think this scene gets like, a slept on a little bit because there's so much other good shit. There's like nine, and you said it perfectly, there's nine Abbott and Costello sketches going on simultaneously because there's also the fact that every time he interacts with the door, he fucks it up in a different new way. He can't get the door right. His sneakers are squeaky. His sneakers squeak. Um, every, like, he insists on using cowboy lingo for everything relentlessly and you can tell it's getting to ray fines like he goes so you're haunted because you've seen his valise so i'm haunted by biff's grip his valise yes yeah <laughs> I, and, I uh, and he also is being thrown at lorenz is throwing words like that even like they're sat words but like you're more of a wordsmith michael but like a lot of these words i don't even know what they were well, like I, love, I didn't know uh, exactly what he meant by say it ruefully and I was uh, like, what's ruefully? Ruefully, and he says it literally, and he goes, no, 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 don't say ruefully, just say it ruefully. <laughs> yeah, exactly, and, and it's just and like, you know what? He's throw throwing, in, that's uh, bad direction, actually. And but. it's, Hobie's acting, too, just like, he's so gives off the genuine naive feel of like when you know he know doesn't know what it means but he's game when he's like and you know what Look, i want to do it the way you one want one thought <laughs> only one thought and he goes of course mr lorenz i want to give you whatever you want and he goes throw in uh, a mirthless chuckle a mirthless chuckle and you're like he doesn't know what that means you know he doesn't know <laughs> you know he doesn't know <laughs> and what that he means. goes gotcha copy um and i also love their little con side conversation where he goes she importunes you to sit on the couch and conversation ensues. And he goes, can I talk to you? And he steps aside and he goes, she importunes me now. 
would my character be worried about that? Is that scandalous? Like, would I be upset about that? And he goes, no, no, no. Importu, I merely mean to say she invites you to sit on the couch. And he goes, <laughs> but import, does she importune me? You just sit on the couch and conversation ensues. <laughs> Yeah, Uh, it's a great scene. scene. I just suggest you can watch it on YouTube too if you haven't seen it. Uh, It's it's one of my favorite scenes in the movie. It's an editing masterclass as well, and comedy is so much about editing. So anyway, we cut to, and I gotta say, uh, this is the part of the movie where it loses me. Whenever they try to actually make the plot advance, you're like, why does this have a plot? It didn't need a plot. So Mm. we cut to waves crashing on two pyramidal rocks. That will just come back later as a thing, as an image. So there's a little Barton Fink in there. But um, for now, all you do is see a wave crashing on two pyramidal rocks. We pull back to reveal a, uh, a Malibu mansion on the beach and mm-hmm. a little yappy dog. And again, just the sheer craftsmanship expertise, the way the shot zooms in and the door opens and Clooney's unconscious body gets dragged in just as the dog does a single, like, excited turn in place. Everything about the shot, and this is what makes every Coen Brothers movie better than most movies, just shows a level of craftsmanship that makes you wonder how it even happened. It's like in Barton Fink when the seagull dives into the sea and you're like, how'd they even make that happen at that time? Fuck. <laughs> like the craftsmanship. Yeah. But all it really As you establishes from that one, they didn't. That was just luck. That's true. But the thing is, this dog was planned though. For the dog everything, looping was planned for sure. The dong looping was planning. And it it could have just been a simple shot and they made it have a little bit more character. And when you're thinking on itemizing things in in every frame at every second to such an extent, you're also gonna get lucky sometimes because you're putting so much effort and you so you, you insist that it's the highest quality. Um, so, of course, luck randomly happens. There's happy accidents. That's where the term comes from. Um, it's it's you have you'll probably have a higher ratio of that happening if you're controlling everything. Yeah. If you have but you can't control crap. things like birds diving in the sea. So sometimes you're just gonna get a you shot. You can at nowadays if you just CG it in after the fact. But yeah, you throw some chum <laughs> right. or something like that. Yeah. Ooh, there's some real world problem solving. Okay, so mm-hmm. uh, Mannix, what what happens next? Oh, oh, Mannix is becomes aware. Eddie Mannix becomes aware that their star Baird Whitlock is nowhere to be found. Although he assumes he's yeah. on a bender because he's a Kirk Douglas type. Yeah, exactly. So we've gotten Clooney's at the beachfront house now, doesn't know what he's doing, but now we get the first word of it. Fines comes in to complain about Hobie as well, uh, because we're supposed yes. to assume some time has passed. I think it's the, important like, to point out that their current solution they have on the table is to replace, because the extras are so expensive and the set's so expensive, they need to finish right. filming Hail Caesar. Their current plan is to... Right. Use his stunt double, whose name is Chunk, and, yeah. and just let him do the scenes. So that and shoot him from the yeah. back and get footage of people's reaction shots and kind of riff for time until we get the yeah. the you know the the money shot. But then Voldemort the, the bursts in and he's upset and he says Hobie is not working out <laughs> and he specifically says for two decades now the words Lawrence Lawrence presents have meant something to the public. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, he's so good. Uh, yeah, and they're trying to solve things too. 
once again, Mannix, uh, Brolin is so good at problem solving because even when he doesn't have a solution, he still puts you at ease at some way. He's like, okay, I'm going to do this. I'm going to, and so he, so his solution to it, he's like, oh, I believe that he can do it, even though it's like an impossible thing. And from our point of view, it's like, this is never going to work, the whole Hobie Lorenz thing. But he goes, I'm going to look at dailies, I'm going to see what the problem is, and I'm going to fix it, basically. And he tells Lorenz that it's going to get fixed. And like, I'll talk Lorenz to is Hobie. not happy, but he he's not like, he's done complaining, right? Yes. Manix and is then at also the end, he says, and person. I got a lunch with lot And he's like, and, but now I got a lunch. <laughs> yes. Uh, we briefly which is, cut back to the kidnap house where we see Fred Malamad from Serious Man cutting the crusts off of cucumber sandwiches and telling the little dog, quiet, Ingles. So now we know the dog's name is Ingles, which, if you know that name, is a strong tip-off that these are communists because <laughs> he's a famous communist thinker. Then You we- also have mm-hmm. Michael Gambon saying, literally, and so Bard Whitlock found himself in the hands of communists. Yes, he doesn't say that quite yet, but soon. <laughs> quite yet, yeah. yeah. Um, okay. First, yeah, you give, tell us what happens at the secret lunch at the Chinese restaurant. Okay, so yeah, he has lunch with uh, a higher up at Lockheed who's trying to lure him out of the pitchers into aviation. And the whole time the Lockhead, uh, the Lockhead. employee... <laughs> Uh, Lockheed, sorry, Lockheed is, uh, he is, um, just dunking on capital. He's like, that's like the place of make-believe. You should come to where we do stuff, aviation. And he shows him a photo of Bikini Atoll where he's like, this is the real world. This is, we're creating like weapons of mass destruction. This yeah. is the future. You need to live in the now. He shows someone him a photo good at the of job. a hydrogen bomb test, which yeah, exactly. incidentally, according to Nerd Cannon, the Bikini Atoll hydrogen bomb test is the one that mutated all the sea creatures and formed the universe of SpongeBob SquarePants. So just know that. Oh, yeah, that <laughs> makes sense. That makes sense. Yeah. Uh, and Clooney has to take some time to kind of think it over. But I do think that one thing to note is that when he does look at the photo, he says Armageddon, or he says Apocalypse. He says Armageddon. one of those two words. No, but yeah, he says Armageddon. It's very. It's so subtle. I mean, spoiler alert, he picks movies, and that's the whole message of the movie. But so so that we can have that in mind while we imbibe these scenes, I think it's interesting that he they very subtly have him react, Brolin, react with disgust or, like, resentment whenever the guy tells him, things that you've seen are true. When he goes, like, you know, if you work with aviation and scientists, you won't have to, like, babysit these weirdos and you're like that's kind of true his job is hard because the people like for example he's not wrong about a lot of stuff right baird whitlock does go on three-day benders when he should be shooting a 50 million dollar movie and fuck that like baird whitlock's an adult why should he do that like can't and manage together impressively good at his job and it's like almost want someone like him dealing with like saving lives as opposed to just making or being an air traffic controller and the guy's basically like you're wasting your talents doing this and he shows him the bomb and he just says armageddon which i think is a great one word argument of like right but why would i want to be a part of building a bombs that's terrible too I don't want to do it's that also, either. Uh, <laughs> but, you know, he's of the 50 sentiment where the idea was very much so it's us to them. Um, and I just want to drop it for later for pedagogy. Just the idea of uh, the fate of man is at play here. Right. 
Yeah, the idea of yeah. Armageddon is brought up. So we we there's a lot of intercutting here because they're slowly they really milk the mm-hmm. mystery box of like where is Clooney? How's he going to react to this? Mm-hmm. Um, but we're back to the kidnapping house in Malibu. Clooney wakes up. He sees a housekeeper vacuuming. He's in his full Hail Caesar costume, and he's like, <laughs> "Hello," and she goes, "They're in there," <laughs> and like he just politely everyone's in the room. What's yeah. funny is he's had so many benders. You get the impression he thinks he drank so much that he woke up here. Right. Like he's mildly embarrassed. He thinks he randomly wandered into someone's house because he does that so often. Um, Mm -hmm. So he doesn't treat it like a kidnapping. And of course, even later when he realizes, oh, it is a kidnapping, he just acts like, this is fine. I mean, you're not going to hurt me. I'm Baird Whitlock. Um, So he goes in and he just sees this weird collection of professors in tweed jackets with pipes talking politics. And And he just looks at them confused, basically. And then I got to point out, this guy who takes his jacket, Mr. Smitrovich, mm-hmm. he takes that is the sassiest photo ever taken. The, oh, he's a sass man. The choreography of like his crooked smirk <laughs> as he takes the photo and then he like humps the air as he pops the flashbulb out of the camera. Like, oh, I got the good stuff. He's like the de Jesus of this movie. Yeah. He really is. And it's only two photographs. We see him only in like two shots. But maybe. he takes Clooney's photo as if he's like molesting George Clooney. Yeah. Yeah. And I think the idea is just like we got him we now got he's you, like we got you now you're you, you if you ever try to talk uh about talk shit on us we have pr- photographic yeah. proof that you're going to communist me yeah this is the subtext. but unlike what you'd expect which is to be like what's the meaning of this why am i kidnapped Clooney's just such like an affable dude who feels no danger or consequences that he mm-hmm. like takes some finger sandwiches and he sits there going like, what are you guys all about? What's the deal here? Yeah. And they slowly like, explain oh, really? to him like the tenets. History's economics? Tell me more. Yeah, they basically explain to him, well, we kidnapped you because we're communists. And they start to explain the tenets of communism and we cut mm-hmm. out and we'll come back to this later. <laughs> and yeah, that well, my favorite point is then he kind of flexes in the other direction, which is smart of uh, Clooney. Uh, he's like, well, you know what? I got to get back. The studio needs me. Uh, so maybe we'll just pick this up uh, at the next meeting. And uh, the response to that, I'm afraid it's not that simple, which as now we're would starting that it were to build. So would <laughs> that it were so simple. Uh, okay. So Mannix uh, goes to the Hail Caesar set to see if that uh, Whitlock's returned. He has not. But instead, from the producer that he was talking to previously, a ransom note for $100,000 has been slipped under his door, signed The Future, saying, we have your movie star. Give us $100,000. We are the future. Which is very much what you expect out of a Coen Brothers movie. There's almost always a note that says, like, do something, a ransom, for an amount of money. They like gun crime. It's true. They like gun crime. The next sequence, uh, do you have anything else you want to add to that? Uh, No, just that everyone on a Coen Brothers set is playing at such a high level. Like the alligator skin briefcase and the way the belt looks around it. The costume and prop design is next level on this film as well. Like the briefcase has such character. I love it. It's like the bag in No Country has so much character. 
Yeah, and uh, it's it's because they once again we've said it so many times on this. I mean, Ellen they Chandler, only work with know, people who are great. <laughs> every, yeah. Everyone's hitting on their stride, and it's it's as we get to how do you do that. There's also some interesting aspects of that. Nice. Um, but yeah, he has a walk. Thor and, talk, and Thessaly walk and talk huh? with Thora Thacker. Thora Thacker. Uh, uh, and as we learn over the course of these two scenes, there's like a there and back again. Thessaly Thacker, uh, our two journalistic sil- uh, sisters who are twins played by Tilda Swinton. Mm-hmm. Uh, they have one, uh, they each have scoops that they think on two separate barred, uh, Whitlock stories. Uh, one is an old one that alludes to his past with boozing and uh, womanizing. And the new one is that he's missing. Now, Thora, oh, I who's thought the, the old one, who, one was uh, gay innuendo specifically. Because it's gay innuendo as they uh, on wings as eagles. That's um, just, but that calls out to. We don't know what it is yet, oh, but okay. he, she, all she does is, in this scene is kind of allude to the fact that he's a playboy. That's long rumored of Kirk Douglas, and I have to imagine was a reference, a specific reference of like, yeah, dude, like, all, what do you think? Like, all these <laughs> amazing, like, cut film right. stars a lot of them if they were bi or curious or whatever fucked each other a couple times mm-hmm. like they're mm-hmm. rich divas living in trailers doing whatever the fuck they want what do you think so yeah there's a rumor going around that Clooney like fucks whatever he wants whenever he wants <laughs> and, uh, yeah. and at the same time now he's missing and they're wondering why and just so everyone knows a little bit of history, just like a lot of other people, like C.C. Calhoun, who Francis McDormand plays later, was an actual film editor, uh, the feuding Thora and Thessaly Thacker, uh, the identical twin sister group, gossip columnists, they were, that's mimicking an actual rivalry, rivalry between two twin sisters, Hedda Hopper and Luella Parsons, just oh, stuff like that. that. So it's just that kind of thing where it's like you may not that's not super important to the script that's why they didn't dwell on it it's just something that's nice that they know what they're com- yeah. where they're coming from Owens. I think it shows a reverence to the history of what they're talking about Definitely Speaking of efficient problem solving from Mannix what a master stroke he convinces Thora not to run the uh story and then he convinces Thessaly not to run the story about the kidnapping by saying, if you'll wait one day, you can always run it tomorrow. I'm just asking you to wait one day. I'll give you a real scoop. And he's able to sell them on the idea that Hobie and Carlotta dating tonight is a scandalous big story, even though Mm -hmm. we know that's literally a PR event that he wants to drive media attention to. So he's just amazing at problem-solving in the most yeah, efficient way possible. He's using his own solutions to work for him to solve other he's problems. He's working his solutions to solve other problems. It's amazing. Yeah. Right. And, uh, and yeah, so he's good at that. He also is told by his assistant at the end of those walk and talks <laughs> wait, that wait, he has wait, a wait, call wait. from the future waiting. No, you have to unpack this. I'm sorry. But oh, this okay. made me you laugh so hard it. because it's literally like, it's just the most emblematic moment of like, it was just another time. It's the a future. kid who could never fucking exist. Like, what a naive society. Yeah. This little, like, red-haired kid who looks like fucking alfalfa rides up on a bike right. with a basket and a bell on it at a movie studio. And he goes, oh, hey, what's up, Peanut? And <laughs> the kid who's okay. apparently named Peanut goes, ah, oh, geez, 
I know it sounds screwy, Mr. Man, but the secretary said to find you, PDQ. Apparently, someone's calling from the future? And he goes like, oh boy, I gotta run. And I just love... Yeah, the future! It's like fucking Jimmy Olsen and Superman or something. Yeah, yeah. It's, and like, no one is batting an it's, eye. No one's batting like, an oh. eye at this kid, Peanut, who's like, how can this kid even exist? Jesus. It's like, <laughs> And you know that when the Coen brothers were sitting in front of a type typewriter or a word processor, yeah. they're, what they're doing is they're just going like... What's his name be? Peanut. And you know they both went. <laughs> <laughs> he should say PDQ. Oh, yeah. yeah. No one says that yeah, anymore. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He's such a piece of shit. Yeah, he's a piece of shit. I love him. <laughs> like, they probably dreamt about things that they could do to him. That would be <laughs> yeah. hilarious that they've never put in the movie. Because we do, like, the same type of shit. Oh, sure. Like, Peanut rides. Hear his, about writers Peanut rooms. rides his bike off frame. You hear him get hit by a truck. <laughs> stuff like that. <laughs> yeah, stuff like that. Yeah, why not? Fucking peanut. Uh, so, um, he returns to his office to try and talk to the future, who we know are the communist kidnappers. They've hung up already, but Hobie is there waiting. Uh, because, as he said earlier, I'm meeting with Hobie to try and explain good acting to him. And uh, basically, they have a very genuine heart-to-heart about how Hobie's trying hard but not getting the hang of it. And it doesn't get resolved because he ultimately admits to Hobie, you know, I have more on my on my mind right now. Baird Whitlock has been kidnapped and we don't know by who. And Hobie's... I fucking yeah. love this. Well, I, I love... love this it really thing. reminded me of uh, Leo DiCaprio's arc in Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, I realize, is about him, like, thinking he was a good actor because he's in action and Western vehicles, then realizing he's not that good, and then stepping up and being good. And it's so interesting how Hobie's microcosm is the same. And I would say yeah. in a quieter way, this actor kills it just as hard as Leo did. <laughs> like, it's a good... and. By the way, this is Han Solo. You know that, right? Oh, this is the new Han Solo, right? Yeah, from Solo yeah. Story, Star Wars Han. World. Yeah, yeah. Han. Uh, he's he's very good. He's actor. a great actor. Very yeah. good. Yeah. Uh, what's his name? I gotta call it. Just well, so look I it up. Well, I say people... uh, he says Hobie. There's a hundred K in this grip. Ransom money. Baird Whitlock has Alden, been kidnapped. Alden uh, Enric. And then uh, Enrenreich? Han Enrenreich. Anyway, he says, uh, I I just really laughed when he explains the kidnapping and it's slow zoom pumps in on Hobie and Hobie goes, this is bad. (laughs) Yeah, I also love kidnapping as bad. (laughs) But it's also like Hobie is like very wise in this scene because you can tell that it's just like, this is just two, these are just two people who know that they're in a predicament talking about it and there's no ego involved in it. Surprisingly, these two people amongst everyone else in the film have the least amount of ego. Yeah. Right? So these are the two kind of guys uh, that you'd want to solve a problem. And I love... Because they don't care about their bullshit. They oh, just care dude. about the s- I would, solving the problem. Well, Tarantino said he's going to do a spinoff series for Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, which I couldn't give a shit about. But I would love to yeah. see a spinoff series where Hobie and Eddie Mannix solve problems, <laughs> like on a week-to-week <laughs> episode basis. Yeah. <laughs> and so uh, before the future calls back, uh, Hobie wisely also tells him to look the extras since they're not vetted. 
and that's like of course that's like right. obvious like extra. no one yeah. and he's and he, as it was proven by by the film itself that's but i true. still think what he says uh, is pretty like mean-spirited he's like you look at an extra you don't know what they're thinking and i'm like that is a little too a much little it should just be like we don't know they're question right. marks right they could act their way the other way to look at it is we, well all the stars you own their lives so like you know it's yeah. probably not them it couldn't be yeah. someone inside the uh, house and also his uh, wife calls real quick and i think as an important point in this pattern of establishing that eddie mannix is on some level a good human uh they make a joint parenting decision where he's surprisingly you get to see that no matter how forceful he is in his work when he talks to his wife he's very much like listening and attentive and like well what do you think we should do and she goes i think we should do this and he goes okay that sounds good <laughs> and it's just sort yeah, of to contrast right. with how he acts at work right where he's the always the biggest dick right. in the room but um, the future calls they yeah. say we're the future bring us leave the money on stage 8 and he says to Hobie, can I borrow your belt? Because the briefcase is too big to hold the money. He belts the briefcase closed. And we cut to stage eight, where we see Oof. one Channing Tatum. another one of these segments that's like a lookalike of a, of a film genre that used to be popular. In this case, the sailor, like a Gene Kelly movie. It's Fred Astaire. It's Fred Astaire and yeah. Gene Kelly. It's sailors dancing and singing about how they're about to go to sea. <laughs> The underlying joke is uh, a little dated, even by our standards in 2020, dated. but little dated. I would argue they don't, I uh, to me, it didn't really feel homophobic, but it does treat being gay no, as silly, which I would still argue is problematic, yeah. um, but it's well executed. It's Channing Tatum uh, dancing with all his sailor buddies, doing a song called No Dames about how on the sea they won't have any dames, but of course... It becomes an obvious double entendre. We're like, we're going to fuck each other. No dames, only dudes. Right. Um, like, what's funny about it is the joke structure, not the joke itself. Like, it's I like how the lyrics slip into, they're, like, sad about the fact that there's going to be no women. And then by the end of the song, they're like, yeah, no women. And that's, like, a weird turn for people to go through in a song. Yes. But uh, at the same time, yeah, it's a kind of a dated... I mean, it's just a gay sailor joke. That's all it yeah, is. Yeah, which is, like, you get the feel of the Coen brothers making jokes from their age bracket. You know what I mean? Like, I get it. It's a yep. simple gay yep. joke. And when I was 12... Those jokes, and not just because I was 12, I mean even among adults, like if you look at sitcoms of the era. When I was 12, that was still funny because we still, most of us like as a culture on some deep level hadn't reckoned with the fact that we felt weird about people being gay. Now everyone's over it by and large, which is great, and it makes these jokes less funny. Like I, I, I think in the next generation, this joke would almost have no meaning because you'd be like, why right. does it matter that they're going to fuck each other on the boat? <laughs> I don't care. Yeah. Um, but are they it seems like everyone loves it. All right, so, so with that circle great. drawn, I just want to point out that again, from an execution standpoint, in and of itself it is an impressive bit of tap dancing and choreography and it's fucking great at every every level as far as like being a big musical number. <clears throat> the lyrics are also And I don't want to Yeah, go ahead. Well, I just I don't want to dip into pedagogy too much, but just because we're on it right now, I think it's important to note like they're just like um, Coen Brothers are always they're kind of like a snake. The next scene is when we're back in Malibu, and I, like we can talk about more about it. But Clooney is blackmailed 
for on wings as eagles amongst the communists, which is specifically that he is like fraternizes uh, or he's homosexual or there's some scandal. Oh, interesting. So while it is saying that at this time, the fifties is making a gay sailor joke. It's also showing the seedy underbelly about why that it's a gay sailor. Right. Joke. And it reminds me, of, um, it's like the comedy version of LA confidential where they're like, there's the Hollywood glitz and glamour, but behind the scenes, everyone's sucking each other's dick and their stomachs are full of semen and they're dead in a hotel. This is the lighter version of that same story, talking about it's the pointing duality. Out the hypo- yeah. yeah, it's and it, the hypocrisy of 1950s. It's almost like, even though I do want to say because they do it, and I don't think that artists should be separated from their art in this regard, it's it's always hard for me to really pin them down on these kind of jokes when it does seem like they're saying that the 50s is making these jokes. Now, that may be me giving a yeah. lot of credit. As we to know, right. I mean, we're... But it's, that they, it's not not intentional, you know? Agreed. Or you're right, that they're using the themes in both ways where they're like, it's actually an interesting point to say society is so homophobic at this time that it could ruin Baird Whitlock's career. Right, because it's funny when Thora Thacker says that and you realize that it, the reveal is going to be that he had gay sex once, from a 2020 perspective, you're like, and? Like, that wouldn't ruin his career. Yeah. But it would at this time because it's a homophobic society. So at the same, I get, they're pointing out, which is interesting, by placing those elements together, society was so homophobic in the 50s and yet look at how homoerotic their media was <laughs> because yeah. when you try to pretend being gay doesn't exist you will accidentally hilariously make super gay shit constantly because you have no yeah. sense of what it is to be gay. <laughs> yeah. And then in 2016, it's also just a joke to make fun of that. Huh. I agree. Would that it were to so, so But I, I'm saying like, I, I've been yeah, thinking no, about this I a lot. Like, I don't know what I am sexually. It's hard. I like, I'm somewhere in the middle of the mm-hmm. spectrum, but, um, but I wouldn't want to like co-op ownership of gay issues. But like if a gay person told me they watched this and they thought it was really campy and hilarious, I would be like, that makes sense. And if a gay person watched it and was like, I felt a little minimized by the fact that the butt of the joke was that it's silly to be gay. I'd also be like, that makes sense yeah. too. So, mm-hmm. um, but Channing Tatum kills in it. He is a fabulous snakes dancer. These goings. Uh, I want to point out the highlights from the sequence now that we've caveated it to hell. Uh, I love just the stupidity, like the on the nose stupidity of the lyrics. No dames, but we might see some octopuses. No dames, or a half a dozen clams. No dames, and you're like a half a dozen clams. I don't know why that makes a me half laugh. A dozen. We're going. We're no, joining it's like, the navy. It's so specific. We're joining the navy. We might see a half a dozen clams. Yeah. <laughs> what the fuck um, is that? They do this amazing uh, bar stool tap routine. It's so cute. I can't stand it. They do that bit where the the uh, tablecloths get pulled out from under them by the perfect bartender who's just like, oh, come on. What's going on here? <laughs> um, he swings off the sign that says swing and dinghy. It itself is a swing and dinghy. Um, mm-hmm. I personally think the way they frame the tap dancing feet is a No Country for Old Men reference when Anton Sugar's strangling the cop in the beginning, but I could be wrong. <laughs> I could be reading into it too much. Uh, yeah. And then um, 
Yeah, by the end, they're literally singing like, here's how it'll be on the sea. We'll have to be each other's names and shit like that. <laughs> they start yeah, exactly. dancing. Uh, and then at the end, I think one of the last lines is, the only thing that's certain is we'll see a lot of sea. And I have to imagine that C stands for cock, right? <laughs> we'll see yeah, a lot of yeah, C. It's gotta. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, and then uh, I think like the climax is them literally just like dry humping each other, but as a dance, <laughs> as a dance yeah, where like yeah, Channing Tatum is playfully caught between two guys' butts. <laughs> right. That's not entirely unfamiliar to like dances that they did. And that's and yes, still do. Absolutely. There are sailing tap dancing movies from the fifties where guys' dicks are touching the guy's butt next to them, and that's fine. I love And kind it. of the famous <laughs> one of the famous stills is also like uh uh Chan- Channing Tatum with his like he has like a face he's like, Oh like he's looking off like he's uh whatever the name of that uh fifties little kid who's like gets caught and puts their finger to their mouth it gets or caught like, like yeah the girl uh, on the sunscreen bottle with her <laughs> yeah and stuff like that and he and you can tell that he's holding like he's vertically 69ing a dude yeah oh so yeah it's like yeah, they're they, doing they all this freeze frame in honestly like for cohen brothers it's pretty on the nose they all freeze frame in like team right. america world police poses of like the puppets fucking like they all freeze as if it's, they're fucking it's very strange. I mean, it's well done, but that's that's strange. what we're dancing around is. I do think something about it's odd, and yet at the same time, you're like, it has to be said. When told to do a mildly offensive send up of like gay tap dancing, Channy Tatum fucking destroyed it. Like it's so yeah. well done, uh, yeah. regardless of whether you find it offensive. And I don't even know when did uh, Magic Mike come out. Is this pre or pre- a post? I don't know, but I love Channing Tatum. Yeah, or uh, mm. what, doesn't he get? Uh, what's the guy's name? Uh, Eastbound and Down guy. Doesn't he fuck Channing Tatum in the ass and and this is the end? Oh yeah, Danny McBride. Yeah, 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 yeah. No, but he has that, him as a little slave there's like boy. a shot of Channing Tatum's ass in that that haunts my memory. But anyway, moving on. Uh, George Clooney. We cut back to the kidnapping house. Uh, George Clooney's oblivious to the fact that he's been kidnapped, or he's aware he's kidnapped, but he doesn't seem to feel threatened at all. He's genuinely right. interested. And finds out that they are all bitter screenwriters who got screwed out of profits by the studios. Uh, And there was the serious version of that is that um, Brian Cranston movie that came out a little bit ago. Trumbo, I think it was called. Trumbo, yeah. 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 Um, But this was a trend. Screenwriters at this time were even more undervalued than they are now and didn't get points or a profit participation or anything like that. So the sort of tongue-in-cheek satirical version here, and honestly, just because it's a trope of the 50s and 60s and the Coen brothers want to stack together a series of these tropes, they're like, oh, I know. All the disaffected, underpaid screenwriters will become communists. That ties all our tropes together nicely. Yeah, because <laughs> they're the blacklisting of during the Red Scare kind of stuff. Yeah, <clears throat> and the kid from Freaks and Geeks plays... Uh, the most extreme left winger, which I love that he's just constant. They're like, yeah. well, you see the working class and he's like parasitism. And they're like, shut up, Rodney. <laughs> You're too extreme. Yeah. <laughs> um, he's too extreme. But yeah, they, they're a collection of, of one of each kind of communist. There's like the Einstein type communist, the British type communist, the proletariat revolutionary type communist. And they slowly convince Clooney that 
um, that communism's better than capitalism. And he buys it. He gets flipped. And they also tell him that, or he goes, well, what are you going to do, though? Like, are you going to kill me? Because if you let me out, you know, I know who all you are. I know where you live. And they're like, right, but you'll stay compliant because of the on wings as eagles things, which is interesting because that means that Channing Tatum, who leads this group, is willing to use society's normalized homophobia against George Clooney to advance the cause of communism, which is kind of fucked uh, up if you think about it. I know it's a comedy and yeah. we're not supposed to, but that's an interesting little circle. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Uh, next scene. Yep. <clears throat> Mannix and ScarJo. Ma- Mannix has, yeah, Mannix has an idea, which is once again just Mannix like slaying problems. He try. He figures out that he could f- uh, find a loophole where Deanna ScarJo can adopt her own child. Yeah. If they give it to another family, like, so if she doesn't have the child, she just goes away, has the child and it, and the child is under the uh, ward of someone else who wants to give up the child. She can then adopt the child from that person. They just need a person who's willing to uh, essentially take the child in for x number of uh, an amount yes. of time which and let's not jump to happen. that actual scene yet because this is just him having yeah, the idea no. yeah this is all just the secretary scenes of him ha- having the idea check into if this is possible because yeah. i think it's possible on the way to francis mcdormand in her little editorial cave that's the next scene where mannix is coming by to see the hobie dailies like he said he did uh, the hobie dailies like he it- said he <laughs> Like he said he would. Uh, so, and he wants to see how it went and uh, that they, how they changed or solved the problem. Uh, they changed, which is, oh my God. well, before that happens, just as a random joke, I think just because they want to get Frances McDormand in doing like Looney Tunes, uh, she's got a scarf. Uh, so she's very, uh, very good with the movie Vola, but at a certain point, when uh, it's trying to take the the film take up is uh, advancing the film, it catches a scarf. And so at first you think, right. So they do this little bit where right before he's about to say, would it, would that it were so simple? uh, You get like a cigarette burn and you look and you hear like the machine starting to burn and you go like, Oh shit, is just the film being destroyed pan left and you just see Francis McDormand getting choked to death on this movie Vola, which I think is just an like, it's, it's nothing other than the Looney's Tunes. They joke. literally just, the just Rolodexed. We want to do a film editor. We want to do a That's scene funny. about editing, and I think the important thing about it, from the point of view that this film is an appreciation of film, is that mm-hmm. I think it's noble. It's an edit that they joke. were like, we must include a scene that teaches the layperson how valuable editing is to the process, and I it feels like the religion meeting a scene where you're like, it didn't technically impact the plot. It was just something they knew they wanted in there. And it does make you pay attention to the power of editing because you've seen multiple takes of Hobie Doyle trying to do this scene, and now you get to see the edit they actually land on. The payoff. So they sneakily put in what would be like a YouTube editing tutorial. Like you saw the source footage, and now you get to see the cut that the studio landed on. But at the same time, they were like, but a joke has to happen. And they're like, oh, I know. It's a rotating machine. What if she gets choked and by the machine? <laughs> right. But I just think that there's there's something nice about the fact that it's it's an editor joke. In other words, an editor uh, getting choked. Well, only an old editor funny, joke. Like Francis, yeah. Mc, yeah, Francis McDormand. It makes like ah, no scarves. She goes, Got I shouldn't it. wear you know, scarves. Like, 
Yeah, it's she kills it and all that. So it's an editor, a joke about an editor, but it's also an editing joke, if that wasn't made clear, where the anticipation of the moment that you're supposed to see the thing that you've been waiting for, you're seeing the lead up at the right moment, literally at the frame that you're like, okay, and here it goes, they take it away from you. Of course, they bring it back, it's all fine, and they find out that the solution to everything, and they do it kind of tongue-in-cheek, because basically Hobie almost looks directly into camera, is that instead of saying, would that it were so simple, or would that it were so simple, he just goes, it's... Not that simple. Complicated. Oh, it's complicated, that's right. <laughs> complicated. And it's like, and now he's... And the thing is, for some reason, we're supposed to believe that what, whatever makeups makes up Hobie and hit, like makes him look smooth... Uh, complicated was the right word because he looks like James Bond when he says it and like everyone is just like fine with that and that's how it worked so the Coens are saying that this is an insurmountable problem that somehow got solved why because people are good at their well job. and they're like how it's actually really easy to solve once you find it just say <clears throat> that sentence in a way that actor yeah. does understand <laughs> yeah exactly it, just how do we solve the, the problem well yeah it, it, it would, would that it were so simple we just changed it to it's complicated yeah, you know? totally like, worse we do that exactly there were many sketches where we worked with actors who we were not our core group who didn't get a joke and you would just change the line on the spot and you'd be like does this yeah. make sense to you and they go oh i get it and you go then say that i don't care <laughs> yeah 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 so it's i just love that it's Trying to make everything seem so complicated. I love that when she when replays simple. it after the scarf incident, you can actually see the single frame that got burned go yes. through again. Well, that she like the burned the work print. The attention to detail yeah. is that work print frame is burned. They will have to address that later. Yeah. yeah. I knew I knew you would look for it because I, I looked I for it. I freeze to like, check it. I wonder it. if yeah. they did that. And I was like, ah, they did it. They did it. And it's just it's one It's just frame. great. Yeah. Um, okay, so he goes back to meet again. And again, this is just the ticking clock ramping up. I would say the weakest part of the film yeah. are the maneuvers to actually keep the plot going are pretty transparent. For the Coen brothers, you're like, okay, he meets with him again and the guy's offers even better. I get it. This is the engine that's yeah. nominally driving us forward. But I'm really just watching Eddie Mannix do stuff. I don't care why. <laughs> yeah, we're more or less act three and it's all just kind of paying off or not paying off. Yeah, but we see we see Eddie uh go where we see Eddie meet with the aerospace guy again the aerospace guy points out that he has a 10 year contract after the 10 years he would have a guaranteed pension he could retire his life would be much 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 easier like he would actually have work life balance he also gives him presents for his kids which you assume is airplane mm -hmm. shit which it turns out to be but at the last moment he also calls Hollywood a circus and you can see that Eddie Mannix immediately gets turned off by that yeah, he's not a big fan of the negative yeah. viewpoint of, of that what this he's guy dedicated has. his life to. Exactly. Then, even if it's true, um, then we cut to Hobie's date with Carlotta that we knew was going to happen because Eddie Mannix set it up. Um, and I think two important points is the film also very intentionally, like we said, this movie is all about the juxtaposition of granting that 50s Hollywood in America was full of toxicity and nonsense and bullshit. Um, and yet, and self-importance that was unearned. But at the same time, it really was in the way that a circus is. This is what I think is interesting. The guy just called Hollywood a circus pejoratively. Like it's bad to be a circus, right? He's saying it in an, in right. an insulting way. We immediately yep. cut to 
Hobie Doyle exactly right. waiting for his date and doing lasso tricks just because he knows how to, to, to entertain himself. And it's an uncut wide shot of this actor really doing lasso tricks that are really genuinely mind blowingly impressive. And you know what? That's the good sense of what a circus is. It immediately cuts from someone going, Hollywood's a circus in a bad way to something you'd see at a circus that fills you with delight. <laughs> and like it's mm-hmm. this amazing mm-hmm. juxtaposition of like, without having the line anywhere in the film, powerfully saying, and what's so wrong with a circus? I kind of like the circus. So we see Hobie doing these kick-ass lasso tricks. And the we see glimpses of what make the Coen brothers love entertaining as an art form. And uh, he meets Carlotta Valdez, who I really find this beautiful because as, as an entertainer, it's something you experience for real over and over. These people don't know each other at all. And yet, uh, because they're both lifelong performers they immediately have a bond and a connection and they understand some aspects of each other on some level because it is a certain type of person who takes storytelling and entertaining and makes it their career. So I love that they just meet and they're immediately like friends and cute together. And he's like, here's my lasso shit. This is what I do. And then he goes, is it hard to dance with all them bananas on your head? And she's like, no. Oh, you want to see my special talent? Here it is. And she does this cool little dance where she balances her purse on her head and drops it into her hand. And it's like these moments of like, we're both card carrying members of the secret society. You know what I mean? It's like when you meet another performer and you go like, well, here's the thing I do. And you're like, oh, cool. Here's the thing I do. Uh, and it's, it's, for my money, it's like the most adorable sequence of the movie. Is there... It's it's uncanny how much you... I'm Like what I'm looking at at my notes and what you just uh-huh. said, that it makes me so happy that the note that we like both had as the same is about just a, the joy of sometimes... The joy of like storytelling, the joy of uh, like what the Coen brothers are doing. Just sometimes showbiz is just talented people and everyone else in the film... Uh, talking about the methods of success or solving yeah. the problems in the machine. No, sometimes it's just like, look at that guy fucking lasso. And f- it's fucking right. great. And for a team like Joel and Ethan Cohen to do it, it's even more powerful to say, okay, so we have this sequence where this guy's good at lassoing. You know what? Let's just fucking lock the camera off and have him do it. Like, it deserves yeah. the respect of just being viewed as what it is. Wow, this yeah. guy does cool lasso shit. That's fun. <laughs> yeah. It's great. Yeah. It's a simple appreciation of like what humanity has inside of it. Um, I will yeah. ruin it for you a little bit. Is it CG or something? It, there, there is green screen involved. Okay. I think it's someone else's hand. So it isn't the actor, but that is someone who's doing it. It's not CG or anything like that. I still argue uh, that their just... intention is to make you feel the way I described, even if they faked it. Right. That's part of what movie making exactly. is. That's exactly. the point. Yeah. <laughs> Precisely. Um, so we cut to Mannix at home. This is the only time we see him at home. He gives his kids the plane toys. You can tell, like, basically the reason we're here is to establish that, no, 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 he's not lying. Eddie Mannix loves his family. You can tell he genuinely yeah, loves his family. You can tell he ge- <laughs> he's being quiet so they don't wake up, but, you know. But he looks at them with that look them. of, like, I'm so lucky to be your father and watch you sleeping. Yeah. yeah. And then and it's one of those, fi- that 50s hypocrisy where it's like, ah, you know, like, you're never going to be home. 
that's kind of bullshit, but at the same time, like, he still loves his kids, yeah. you know? and my dad was like this, even though he wasn't from the 50s, but I get it. It's like the dad who's like, you know I love you because of the reason I work 100 hours a week is to put food on the table, and you're like, okay, okay, then you love us. Like, got it, check. It's that kind of dad. <laughs> um, mm-hmm. where, yeah, yeah exactly. which is a very 50s, 60s type of dad. And she's a... Uh, uh, Miss Pill is a very uh, 50s, 60s type of housewife. I think it's interesting, and it is kind of an interesting like view at normalization of of culture in the 50s, that he says, he asks her opinion. He goes, uh, I could take this job that would be more money, I would be home more often, I would see the kids and you more often. And she goes, well, that sounds great. And he goes like, yeah, but... And he just trails off. And then he goes, but what do you think I should do? And she says, well, you know best. You decide. And I'm like, that's a 50s marriage for you. <laughs> yeah. That's, yeah, that's that's what it is. I also love that in the scene where uh, he, was, he was having the second lunch or whatever, the extended lunch mm-hmm. with, the, uh, with the Lockheed employee. He's like, well, yeah, yeah, check with your wife. Check with your wife. It's like it's this setup in the 50s that is like, you say everyone that, had and then it's you like do how they were want. woke yeah it was like how they thought agency worked back then is that well your wife has to make that decision right it's like the same kind of hypocr- uh, hypocrisy we make when we jo- do the joke like well she runs the marriage kind of stuff that they yeah. you know in the 50s they would do like i'm just she here the she's the one who's re- the real taskmaster and stuff like that and it's just like yeah but you also give her no agency and she's yeah. learned to just tell people uh, whatever you think is best. You're like, yeah, she's my better half. She really wears the pants. And you're like, yeah, but she's not allowed to access the checking account. So not really. You're just saying yeah, that. It's kind of a, <laughs> yeah. It's, yeah, it's it's kind of well done. Um, uh, yeah. And I love that. Uh, I like Eddie Mannix's simple joy because all he exists to do is solve problems. He takes such deep satisfaction when a problem solves itself. <laughs> Um, because another notable point in that scene is he goes, Oh, our son, he didn't want to play shortstop. I was supposed to call the coach. I forgot. And she goes, that's okay. He did shortstop anyway. It turns out he loves it. He's switching to shortstop and he stares into space and he goes, wow, it took care of itself. That's great. (laughs) (laughs) He's so grateful that one prop is resolved. He's like, that's (laughs) I love that. And then that's I love great. Like that's he's all he's such means an interesting say. character in the subtle things we know about him because even as by our modern standards, he's a completely absentee father who does has like almost no real relationship with his family. He is attentive. Like he cares. Cause the, they make a point of also saying, she goes, Oh, and our daughter passed her Spanish quiz. And he goes, Oh, that's good. She was really worried about that. I just love the subtle skill of like having a line that establishes, hey, this guy actually pays attention when his kids tell them about their mundane kid problems. He logs that away. Right. It's of equal importance as all the movie studio problems. He cares about his family's problems. He's a 50s dad who's not home, but he cares. <laughs> and that's who he is. Yeah. yeah. It's that's yeah, it's just a it's an interesting depiction of a that's uh, it. Human. I don't think they're that, coming down pro or con. Totally true to They're 50s. not coming down pro or con on Eddie yeah. Mannix. It's just true to life and it's interesting. Um, yeah. So they, we cut back to Clooney. 
for another beat of he's even more pro-communism now. Like they're saying stuff and he's going, wow, that's so true. That's all. <laughs> I'm going to move mm-hmm. us along a little bit. We go, we cut to their date, which is Lazy Old Moon, which is um, the date with Hobie and uh, yep, Carlotta. Great line. Sorry they're to watching. a great line from the narrator to introduce this scene who says, as they walk into oh, a yeah. movie premiere. Uh, they go to witness another weave of gossamer, another movie, another balm for an aching mankind's endless toil. Good line. Good line. <laughs> yeah. And it's called Lazy, Lazy Old, Old Moon. Moon. <laughs> uh, and it's uh, it's just one of those singing pretty, pictures, singing cowboys. <laughs> And it, 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 it's very much reminiscent of Barton Fink, whereas Barton Fink is more of a horror show, and it's showing the horror of Hollywood uh, filmmaking with the ceaseless cavalcade of Stupid, uh, dailies that, yeah. that are identical, and it's all the same. They'd show just a, they'd give you some moments about here's how movie, and this is when all you saw the movies being made, you saw the performances being rehearsed. We, we kind of cut in and there, uh, in and out throughout the process. Here's the final process. There, we're at a screening, and Lazy Old Moon, we're watching it and all the piece together. Likes it, they have a good time. Yeah, <clears throat> loves it, Even loves though, it. And it's just eyes, basically the jokes are simple, hacky, and dated and shitty. Yeah, they're hacky <laughs> as shit. It's all it is, is just, uh, it's just. Hobie playing guitar and this whole time this old this old uh grizzled cowboy man is yelling at the moon gets angry at there's two of them because he sees the reflection of the moon in the water tries to attack the moon uh and the water is in like a horse trough and just like slops around in there that's funny and then he plays a song yeah it's very slim pickings but remember Outside in the real world, we're testing hydrogen bombs for that for the first time give humanity the ability mm-hmm. to wipe all life off the face of the earth if we so choose. Mm-hmm. So isn't it nice to just, just watch this of... guy fall into a horse trough? That is very much the point of this mm-hmm. movie. And all movies, I think the Coen brothers would argue. Um, so then we back to the real yeah. world. Eddie Mannix, I just got to point out. Eddie Mannix is walking up, and I'm sure this is just a true period note, like something that really was true in the 50s, but I fucking wish it was still true. Eddie Mannix is walking up a series of stairs, each of which the vertical face of each step has an advertisement on it, like, hey, come to our pharmacy, cough syrups on sale. That's so cool. Malls should still have that. That's rad. (laughs) Yeah, it is. We put ads on everything. (laughs) It has a look. It's like a way of making the ads, placing them in the space in a way that looks cool as opposed to just being like, no, you get your own billboard and it's an eyesore and it's yeah. huge because they paid for that amount of your visual real And it makes staircases like visually used space, which they aren't. Yeah. Yeah. I'd rather that than a stairwell that looks nice. Yeah. And a billboard right at the top, I'd rather just be like, no, just make that stairwell look cool and add. Like, if we have to live with ads, why not do it that uh, way? Yeah. Okay, do you mind if I take this scene? I have a lot to say about this scene. Take it. So, uh, what's his name? It's not Josh Gad or Jonah, Jody Hill. Jonah Hill? Jonah okay. Hill. Uh, Jonah Hill. Much like ScarJo, I could give a shit about Jonah Hill. I kind of dislike him uh, being in things. And... I'm glad he lost weight if that's what he wanted to do or whatever. I don't know. I don't under, he's one of these people that I don't understand. Why, why does he have a career? Why? I don't understand. Um, personally, personally, I'm sure he's very nice. 
I'm very nice, but I don't have a career. So, you know, that doesn't matter. So I'm not saying he's a bad guy, but uh, I, I have a anti-Hill bias. So coming into this scene as I, in the first time, I was like, this is one of the weakest scenes. Why is Jonah Hill here? This sucks. This isn't funny. I was wrong. I had a chip on my shoulder. I had to get over myself. This scene's very, very funny. So I just wanted to take this scene because I want to like apologize to it. it. Jonah Hill does what he needs to do. I don't think it was hard to do. Jesse Eisenberg could have done it. But like, but the casting of him is correct and their use of him is correct. And the concept of the scene as a sketch is fucking funny. It also made me realize that I think Scarlett Johansson is actually a Mae West analog. Do you think that's appropriate to say? I think it's, <clears throat> I think it's combining like terms. I mean, she definitely talks. Uh, she definitely talks like Anna. Okay, Stroy, but she but, also uh, says, "Is it <laughs> at the end of the scene because he notarizes stuff with a pump, like a stamp pump?" She says, "Is it yeah. hot squeezing it like that?" Which has to be an homage to you know how to whistle, don't you? Put mm-hmm. your lips together and blow, right? Anyways. Yeah, 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 yeah. It's so the, like, yeah. I mean, there's a lot of sexual innuendo in yeah. the 50s and stuff. That's how they did it. Because the Hayes Commission didn't allow you to say the word sex or wiener or anything in a movie. Um, yeah. But I do think yeah. there's a Mae West comparison being made. So anyway, regardless, sure. uh, it's this long, again, it's like the uh, Would That It Were So Simple. It's sort of an Abbott and Costello bit. It's just a lot of people talking fast about this adoption scheme they're going to do and having mild misunderstandings that are very humorous. Like she says, how can I trust he'll give back the baby? And they go, Oh, I would say that this guy is probably the most reliable person on the face of the earth that I've ever worked with. In fact, for a client of the studio, he took the rap for a crime and did six months in, in County jail for a DUI. And she goes, okay, but you're off the sauce now. And he goes, I never touched the stuff. It was a legal fiction. <laughs> he's trying to explain. Yeah, he's just yeah, and she goes, and then he, uh, uh, Mannix mm. explains, you see, your child needs to be adopted by a person. We need to establish personhood. So Joe here will be the, uh, person. <laughs> and she goes, Oh, so you're a legal person. And he goes, that's correct. Sign here. And I love that. As soon as you identify someone as a legal person, they have a document for you to sign. That's just a great joke yeah, exactly. moment. Oh, so you're a legal person. That's correct. Sign this. <laughs> it's also an Arrested Development joke. He's like, what is the one word that I've used <laughs> to Professional. Yeah. You know? He's very... Like, he's just... Abs- He's in professional incarnate. Yeah. All all he'll do is take the rap for you and go to jail for you or whatever you need. But he doesn't want to talk about it. For Just money. sign the thing and pay him. Yeah. No. Just do the process. This is all um, So again, it's a scene we didn't technically need to see. It's just a bunch of jokes and we move on. It's just funny. <laughs> uh, I lo- just uh I also love that they hint at the you know how we kind of not double entendres, but there's always like when like in a movie where it's like a, a, a man's a hero, a woman's like a prize, those kinds of movies that, you know, still come out today. Uh, it's, it's very much like, uh, the, 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 
hero will do something cool and then have like a witty saying after that doesn't necessarily need to be a pun or sexual innuendo, but it's just to look more cool. Mm-hmm. You know, they do that at the end of the scene, which I thought was funny where she, I forget what she says, but she's basically like, yeah, it must be hard. Uh, oh yeah. It's the one yeah. that you reference is like, must be hard. Uh, no, stamping no, no, no. It she says, is it hard squeezing it like that? Which is like a version of the Mae West line, but even more surfacey, which I think is the joke. Uh-huh. You know what I mean? It's like, it's even less tactful than put your lips together and blow. Is it hard squeezing it like that? And then he says, Just doing my job, miss. <laughs> yeah. It's part of the job, miss. It's part of yeah. the job. There you go. Yeah. It's, it's part there's the just job. something about that, like, expect, like, are they trying to make Jonah Hill look cool? Uh, or that, or is she attracted to Jonah Hill? Yeah, what are they doing? I don't know. Him. It's just movie yeah. making. It's a funny scene. They're just like basically doing a sketch. It's just a sketch. Yeah. Uh, it's a nice touch. All right. Eddie Mannix watches some dailies from the Hail Caesar shoot. We realize that Chunk is a terrible actor. At the same time, he hears from his secretary that the kidnappers are being tracked down. Uh, I'm going to rush us through if mm-hmm. that's all right. Yeah. Then we're at a party scene where we see Hobie on a date with Carlotta after the movie premiere. He does more lasso tricks with a piece of spaghetti. He says that's why he never gets sauce on his spaghetti so he can do lasso tricks. Uh, he <laughs> says this here is Italian origami, <laughs> which is a weird mishmash of <laughs> like yeah. ignorant things to say. Yeah. Um, but it's but, wrong uh, and it's weird, but it's really cute. It's, it's uh, cute. It's charming. I believe that in their minds, I'm very much of the opinion that this is. So you know how they've had these sequences that are direct homages to film niche film genres that no longer exist, like the singing cowboy movie, the waterworks movie. I think this one. I think this is a legitimate scene alike that's supposed to remind you of how rom coms used to be, like yep. uh, you know, arsenic and old lace, or I could think of it. It, it happened yeah, one just, night. Yeah, like, bringing up baby or something. This is what a flirting scene would be like in a '50s film, and uh, and even though it's happening diegetically in the world of our film, it's still a pitch perfect impression of one of those scenes. Uh, you can tell that they're not attracted to each other, like they're just being friends. But it's cute as fucking hell. So it's just like. It makes you wish that the Coen brothers would like cave and do a love actually someday. Cause I bet they would do a charming as hell, like light rom-com. Mm. Um, mm. They talk about why they both got into the business. It's revealed that Hobie Doyle, who has been just like fucking stunningly handsome, this whole movie has no teeth, which yeah. is an amazing detail to add. Like again, this juxtaposition of the magic of Hollywood and that it's fake. Like constantly reminding you, don't forget it's fake, but that's okay. It's great, but it's fake, but it's fun, but it's fake. You know what I mean? It's so interesting. It reminds me of like a Bo Burnham special or something, but this constant juxtaposition of Hobie being cute and charming and then going, oh, I'll show you something funny. I have no teeth and I'm actually hideous looking. Yeah, and you're it's, like, it's oh, haunting. I didn't know that. And of course, <laughs> Carlotta is like, that's hilarious. Like She's she, like, that's hilarious. Of course you're fake. So it's Hollywood like a safe space fake. like for yeah, everyone. Yeah. Like Everyone's just having a good time, it seems. Yeah. Um, Thor and Thessaly come by. I don't care enough to unpack it. It just wraps up their arc. Uh, but eventually, Hobie sees that Channing Tatum is there with the signature alligator briefcase with his own belt around it. So serendipitously, which is which I usually consider a weak plot move, uh, Hobie realizes that 
what's his name, Burt Gaynor or something, uh, Channing Tatum is in cahoots with the kidnappers. So he follows his car and he follows it all the way back to uh, the, the house, Malibu the Malibu house. house where the commies are. He walks in the front door <clears throat> and sees Baird sitting there fully, fully having become a communist. And he goes, uh, George Clooney says, whoa, Hobie Doyle, you're a communist too? Yeah. <laughs> Thinking he's coming just by his own accord. And Hobie's and like, the communist is who did it. Like I he, love, because he's a cowboy, right? Like, right. he's cute and seems nice, but he would probably be a MAGA guy today. So he's like, mm-hmm. so... It's commies. <laughs> like you right. can tell, he's, he's can tell disgusted. He's yeah. <laughs> yeah. Goddamn commies. And uh, Clooney's like, "You haven't been here before. It's Bert Gurney's place. He sings. He dances. He's a communist. He's got taste." <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, the commies show up with their dog, and they they take a. Oh no, no, that's <laughs> Angles. right. George Clooney Angles says everyone dog, else is way. down at the beach. Yeah, they're in the and, rowboat by that point. Yeah, and we cut to them and realize, well, they're not actually at the beach. They're in a rowboat rowing out to this particular point that's marked by the two pyramidal rocks we saw earlier. Again, I would argue that it doesn't matter or probably doesn't have meaning, but it's still cool to see the Coens just do their due diligence of like, let's make these rocks mean something since we're going to throw them in. They're just they're doing their job. They're setting stuff up. They're paying it off. Everything's correct. So they use the rocks to find a secret spot in the ocean they're supposed to be at. And a Russian sub emerges much in the same way as the whale emerged in the earlier sequence. Mm -hmm. It looks really cool. It's honestly, it's a very haunting, like beautifully shot way of having a sub emerge. Um, But basically we realize a couple things. One, the dogs belong, the dog angles belong to Channing Tatum. Channing Tatum is apparently an extremely dedicated communist and hater of America, American capitalism, who is actually going to defect and join Soviet Russia. Mm -hmm. (coughs) Did you notice, by the way, two things that I thought were, uh, he leaps onto the, from the rowboat onto the uh, Russian sub and he does the same exact move of when he grabs the pole and it's like, literally he's a sailor grabbing a pole. Yeah, he he does his dance choreography right. as right. he's defecting. Yeah, as he's, he's like, defecting. I'm still a professional dancer, though. Also, <laughs> yeah. by the way, the shadowy fi- uh, figure who's actually standing, like, waiting for Tatum to land mm-hmm. uh, is somebody, and that somebody is Dolph Lundgren. <laughs> Why? I don't know. Because he they, they're like, it would be funny if it was Dolph Lundgren. That's so ridiculous. Dolph Lundgren's probably like, Coen Brothers movie, hell yeah. Hell yeah, that'll go on the old IMDb, hell (laughs) yeah. yeah. So, uh, okay, apparently the Soviet contact is Dolph Lundgren for no reason. Yes, it is. But anyway, um, the professors, let's call them, the disaffected screenwriters, try to donate the $100,000 ransom money. Uh, to the Soviet cause by tossing it to Channing Tatum. But instead, his dog tries to join him and he chooses the dog. Like, rather than let his dog fall into the water, he lets the money fall into the water because they're both coming at him at the same time through the air. So, which uh, is kind a, of a, a favorite, it's a favorite Coen Brothers maneuver. It's very reminiscent of Fargo. Yeah. The money gets buried and no one gets it. It didn't matter. Isn't and life it's because the money doesn't matter futile. to Bert. I mean, he has yeah. it. And if you had the money, if you have, it's what it says about the rich. If you had money, you care about a dog. 
you wouldn't care about the money. It wouldn't be a question for you. For poor oh, people, dude, it might be a decision. I'm middle class. I'm not rich. I would definitely save my pet rather than grab a hundred thousand dollars. Yeah, a pet can swim. <laughs> Money That's true. Can. That dog wouldn't die. He should. He could just pick right. up the dog. Caught them. And honestly, if you ask me, I feel like anyone could have nabbed that briefcase with their oar. Yeah, it yeah. Sank it, very slowly. It's neither here nor there. But, I'm just saying that what the Cohen brothers are doing is showing a ethical monetary dilemma. As opposed right. in in this very silly maneuver, they're ta- trying to talk about empathy versus money. Yeah, but again, I, I honestly think this movie isn't the greatest Coen Brothers movie. The jokes are very strong, and the craftsmanship is off the charts. But I I don't even need to unpack. Like, yeah, I don't know. I feel like they just felt a need to have a ticking clock and to wrap the story up. Like, I don't care about this scene. You know what I mean? I don't care that Bert is revealed to be the communist. The plot super doesn't matter in this one, in my opinion. I think there is a communist. Like, I think there's themes at large. Okay. Uh, Well, let's get to pedagogy so you can unpack that. Exactly. Uh, Hobie drops Clooney at a hotel. Clooney takes a cab to the studio in the morning. Clooney explains to Mannix how these, oh, I met these guys last night. They're really interesting. Did you know? <laughs> they know the laws. Yeah. They know the laws that dictate everything. And he goes, what do you mean? And he goes, oh, history, society. <laughs> it's funny just how affable Clooney is. Well, he says, he goes, did you know? I didn't even know this. Did you know that our movies are just part of a sick desire to normalize the status quo of capitalism so that power structures <laughs> that are in place for thousands of years remain on top? I didn't even know that. Did you know that? <laughs> he goes, it's like, uh, you know, it's fitting. It's funny because he points out literally what the Coen brothers are doing. He goes, it's fitting we're making this Roman movie, you know, because really Hollywood movies are like uh, the bread and circuses, they call it, you know, for the rabble. So really, he's making the argument. This is the argument. Basically, there's two arguments to be made about film. One is that in the grand scheme of things, it's a complete waste of time to write fiction and enact it. Why are we doing this? And the other argument is, no, there's nothing more important than that because storytelling is the only way that humans ritually, collectively get on the same page and make sense about what certain aspects of life mean. Like story is just a word for the organization of reality into an acceptable form because Mm -hmm. reality is actually incomprehensible chaos in a quantity that your brain can't process. Like, that's what it is. That's what life actually is. Storytelling is how we survive and how we function. Now, you can tell what side I'm on because I spent more time on that. But the counter-argument is, no, it's not because it's made up. Like, it doesn't apply to real life. It's stupid. Yeah. And at its worst, it's a tool of oppressors to create propaganda that supports their regime. And so basically, Clooney is just casually saying, oh, you know what I learned on Wikipedia yesterday? Everything we do is evil. I didn't know that. Whatever. But that's interesting. <laughs> and, he's, and he's like, he's misquoting Karl Marx when he, Karl yes. Marx says religion is the opiate of the masses. But it's cool that it's so thematically tied to what Hail Caesar is, which is a movie saying, Jesus is great. Like the ultimate the ultimate cultural ritual story that our society is built around 
Let's combine that with Hollywood, which is the method for delivering these stories in a ritual way to the whole community. And let's all buy in, you know, Spartacus. I am Spartacus. And of course, the negative Mm -hmm. way to look at that is, well, that's just like real Rome. It's the fucking gladiatorial combat just to keep us busy while you're over here building A-bombs and using special interest groups to hijack the government. And you know what? Both are true. Stories can go either, can do either thing. Right. But the point, but in this movie... Eddie Mannix only buys one side. Eddie Mannix is pro-movies. He's pro-story. He thinks it matters. And much like if you've read Albert Camus' The Stranger, (laughs) this is the end scene where this character, who's sort of been a closed system, opens themselves up and expresses the quintessence of who they are. Because Eddie Mannix is so offended by this that he grabs George Clooney slaps the shit out of him way worse than the lady at the beginning of the movie like repeatedly comedically looney tunes mm-hmm. style slaps mm-hmm. him and says what essentially is the moral of this fable he says you're never going to say any of this to anyone you know what you're going to do you're going to go out there and you're going to perform this speech and you're going to do it with feeling and you're going to do a great job and you're going to do it because this picture has worth and you only have worth as long as you serve the picture and you're never going to forget that again yep. <laughs> and he goes oh okay sorry eddie okay you're going to do it because you're an actor and that's what you do just like the director does what he does and the writer and the script girl and the guy who claps the slate you're going to do it because the picture has worth <laughs> and if yeah. you have worth if you serve the picture and you're never going to forget that again <laughs> it's just so it's it's very classic uh like capitalistic hollywood but it's kind of trying to sell you the message of like there's something bigger. The sum is greater than its parts. Right. But at the same time, like why wouldn't people who have had the life experience the Coen brothers have had mm-hmm. write out an appeal that basically says, well, I like movies. I think they're pretty cool. I think they do have value. It's like, of course you think that <laughs> your yeah. whole life is your whole life is movies. <laughs> your whole life validates that. I mean, I also think that, but it makes sense that that would be the Coen brothers moral. You know, if this indeed turns out to be one of their last movies, what else are you going to say at the end of a career like this? But yeah, movies, man, pretty cool. I kinda, like movies. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. That's kind of what it is. They're good and they're bad. Yeah. Just like everything yeah. else. Um, yeah. So then the plot, solves itself because Thoris still wants to run the on wings as Eagles column. But, uh, uh, Mannix explains that Bert was secretly a communist. So if she runs that story, she'll just be seen as a mouthpiece for communist forces, which in the fifties is way worse than being gay mm-hmm. is being pro communism. Um, the so next scene is like, well, so you can't run the story. Yeah, yeah. You go ahead. Well, just that, that basically sums that up. The next scene is, uh, Baird gives his final monologue, so after, you know, Mannix has slapped him into submission, but mm. he, and everyone kind of gets eager about it. Like everyone sees like the beauty of it. And we kind of see on the faces of the people who are like the boom operators and the, you know, the PAs, exactly what yeah. uh, Mannix just said that he's doing a good job. He's fucking killing it, but he forgets the last like, uh, word. Sorry. Uh, just before, <laughs> very much again, like I think uh, once upon a time in Hollywood, like this is the Leo DiCaprio I just, after watch, re-watching this, I think Quentin recently watched this. 
Yeah, it's very. I think I Once know. Upon a Time in Hollywood actually owes a lot to Hail Caesar personally. Mm-hmm. But um, yeah, I think it's important to note that like these little glimpses we've seen of the circus, but in a good way. Like, yes, the circus can distract you from hydrogen bomb testing. But the circus can also truly showcase what's amazing about humans, that humans have these incredible talents. And here at the end of the movie, we get to see George Clooney actually show off good acting. That's his talent. Yeah. And That's the, all uh, he brings to the circus <clears throat> is good acting. The material is um, the is a monologue basically saying like an appeal for Christ. It's basically just trying to say... Uh, when he looked at me, he saw me for all my sins. He looks at people and he, he like he's a completely empathetic soul. He saw the greed in me, but he forgave me. You know, it's that kind of thing. And he's like, there seems yeah. to be a secret truth behind everything, and we just can't see it. But we can see it if we just if we just. And then he forgets f- the word faith, which is hilarious because that's like the word that matters. And right. he, since he's an actor, he could forget any word. So the Coen brothers just made it so that he, he's still not seeing the point. It's the end of a Simpsons episode where they say right. something truly insightful and meaningful, and then they undercut, undercut it with it. a joke because yeah. it's still a comedy and we got to wrap up. Everyone go home, enjoy and yourselves. it's the main <laughs> theme of the movie, really. Um, right. How funny is it to flub the main theme of the movie, which is... The honestly, the Cohen brothers are casting us, the audience, as Jesus, and they're saying like, the movies, going to the movies, is a kind of religious covenant because it's basically saying, I, a fully formed adult with a human brain that understands the difference between fact and fiction, I'm gonna go into this dark room and pretend this shit is really happening. That's the deal. Mm-hmm. It requires a tremendous amount of faith, doesn't it? Because movies are not really happening. <laughs> Right. That's quite uh, a profound statement on film, my 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 friends. It's not he, bad. Uh, Mannix <laughs> returns to confessional about which job he should take. Talks about how uh, there's a job that's real easy, and there's a job that's real hard, but it feels right. Uh, he also confesses to slapping a uh, slapping a movie star, which is just funny. The priest I says slapped a movie star. Five hail marys, <laughs> like that's the cost yeah. of that. Uh, I just thought that that was a nice little setup. But uh, he's because he sees Lockheed Heat as easy, and he sees Capital Pictures as hard, but feels right because he enjoys the process and he enjoys what he does. Um, in a single cut, uh, we see him back hey, on the lot. He's I'm back sorry, at Capital. How- how much did that hit you in the position we're in in life and the things we've chosen to do with our lives? Mm. That, I mean, yeah. Is it wrong to do something because it's easy? Well, what do you mean? Well, there's this job that's easy and there's this job that's hard, but it feels right. It feels like what I should be doing. Yeah. Well, God wants us to do what's right. Like, I'm. that's my life in a nutshell, man. <laughs> Every fucking morning. Every, fucking Every day. Morning. Yeah. Us. Uh. Right, so anyway, I also like that as the movie is delivering the moral, Eddie Mannix himself, like he goes, well, God wants us to do what's right. And he goes, yeah, yeah, I got it. And he goes, because you see, and he goes, no, I got, no, I got it, it, father. <laughs> I got it. <laughs> like, I love that the Coen brothers are like, we're not going to spoon feed you the moral. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, Eddie yeah. Mannix is like, I get it. We're done it's here. such a good, del- <laughs> like I had to mimic it because it's like such a good, Josh Roland kills it. No, look, I got it. <laughs> like, he's like, he's like, just, all right, shut the fuck up. He's like, here's Father. the key to understanding yourself and your life. And he's like, cool. And he's like, do you see what the key is? Yes. Yeah, yeah. All right. I got just it. Just move fuck on. <laughs> yeah. It's just one of those. Can we great, get over like, this? Yeah. It's, 
it's it's like his performance is more than the line. It's just really well done by Josh Brolin. Uh, yeah, and that kills it. And then we end with another. He returns to work with a new vigor, and Gambon um, has uh, has a uh, final little narration as we you know yeah. tilt up to the skies. And he, the last line is more or less: Eddie Mannix's story is never over because it is because written in light everlasting. Which then, the literally the light you see shine into frame as that mm-hmm. happens morphs to become the words which is definitely intentional because they don't credit their movies in this order no No other movie they've done is this way the light becomes the words written produced and directed by joel and ethan cohen and i just gotta say again the (laughs) tarantino connection because in for my money this is a better more elegant version of the joke at the end of Inglorious Bastards where he goes right. this is my finest work and it says directed by Quentin Tarantino this is a better classier version of that bit I love mind. it I love it so much because it's like it's some people call it humble brag but I think that's a super that's a superficial retelling of that joke what it really is is it's self-deprecating humor because they just they just blew hot air everywhere, just all yeah. across the screen. Made it as and for these guys, and then just say, "Look at us!" <laughs> right. Whereas Quentin Tarantino has been like, "Yes, I'm special. Look at me. I'm great." He, the Coen brothers, the Coen brothers, are like, "Leave us alone. We just want to make our movies." I love for that that they were like, "This one time, you know, it'd be funny." If we came out on stage just and we're like, look at us. Yeah, <laughs> just like, like fuck is. us, right? Fuck That's us. That's a funny yeah. meta joke about you yourselves, the Coen brothers. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I have very little tolerance for people who are like, and then mic drop. It's why I don't get along well with Tarantino films. I don't, like, even though I do think Inglorious Bastards might be his masterpiece. It him is, at the yeah. end of that movie saying, like, I think it's my masterpiece. Cut to written, directed by Quentin Tarantino. Is so, like, what are you trying to say? Are you just trying to say you think it's your masterpiece? Is that all that you have it to is. say? It is. It's probably this goes his best way movie. Farther. But that doesn't mean tagging it as such makes it better. That's just <laughs> dancing because you made a touchdown. That's all that is. That's yeah. doing a cool little da- touchdown dance. These guys are over here going, like, God, we're so up our own ass for saying that stories are good. No, you're not. Joel, Ethan, you're all right. And in it's, fact, it's, right. you, you want Grand Ois for it, but then the reason that you did is to take the wind out of your own fucking sails. And the That's only reason they great. would do that joke is because they're ending a film that is thematically related to Hollywood artists being up their own ass and the fraudulent. And now we have to do credits. Right. Yeah. Whereas in Glorious Bastards, he's like, Here's an interesting movie about the nature of grief, trauma, history, vengeance, Nazism, racism, fear. Um, also, at the end, I'm going to throw in a meta joke about how I think the movie came out really well. You're like, that's not really connected to the effort that the movie was making in any way. Mm-hmm. No, it's <laughs> not. No, it's not. No, it's not. Uh, but this is not the well, Tarantino shit upon cast. We still got plenty to do, and I know we want to do. We still have a lot of things we want to say. So with gilding the lily, I want to go to pedagogy. Pedagogy. I want. So here, I'll get out my whole thing, and then you can, you know, respond. Get your whole thing out. You want, man? I'm excited to see your whole thing brought out. Okay. So just as a kind of caveat, this came out at Christmas. I just want you to think about that. I can talk more about that later. This that's intentional. Okay, so oh, yeah. there's something that I read Explain in the Atlantic. 
there's something I read in the Atlantic uh, that David Sims, uh, who's a columnist, wrote about, and he talks kind of about the the offending of the American senses. And he wrote, uh, the priest notes that the Christ is not God, nor God is Christ. You can say that again, the Nazarene was not God, the rabbi interjects. He was not God, the patriarch replies. Part God. So they're all bouncing around faster and faster, faster as Eddie's brow furrows kind of thing. There's unity and division and division and unity. The priest and the patriarch yell at each other in an exchange that could practically serve for the slogan of the last uh, year in American culture. The meta joke, of course, is that much like Ben-Hur, Hail Caesar only depicts Jesus fleetingly and with oh, no I'm personality sorry. outside of a general holy glow. The idea that anyone could be offended is as ridiculous as it is sadly plausible. I think that that's interesting. There's a, uh, the reason why is there's also another scene that we kind of uh, omitted, which is near the end of the film, a second AD who's kind of coming up and asking people, uh, gathering lunches for everyone. We see some feet tied to a crucifix, uh, tied to a cross, and... Um, as it's been established in another scene, uh, extras have to sit and stand in one place forever, so we get the sense that they're it's just an extra. But we also know that that's probably Jesus, and we did get in another scene that they found out this guy, a kid named Todd, after Mannix did like a... Who they consider in very the scene with the holy men, like <laughs> Yeah. They found out they had a long talent search to find like, a kid to play Christ. Like, Trust he, he me, you're, you're going to well. love this kid. It won't offend your sensibilities. He's yeah. super Jesus-y. Trust me. So, uh, and then the second AD goes to this Todd, who, once again, we're not seeing it, just like in Spartacus, just like in the movies Dailies of Hail Caesar. Yeah, I'm we sorry to interrupt, back, but I, never... for film nerd's sake, I do have to make the correction that you're absolutely right. Uh, I think it's probably an amalgam, but I have been conflating Spartacus and Ben-Hur this whole episode. Just so people yeah. listening who do know their film history don't think that we don't realize that. Sorry. Go ahead. Mm -hmm. uh, he asks, the second AD asks, who are you? <laughs> uh, now, so Todd uh, is on a cross and he's clearly in pain, probably from the having to be on a cross for a while because he's an extra and he's sitting standing. And he goes, uh, Todd. And then he goes, are you extra? Are you an extra or principal? And his response <laughs> is, I think I'm principal, <laughs> which is such a great analogy for what I think the Coen brothers are doing with most of this movie in terms of the religious aspects of it. In like, it's making a satire of the fifties, fifties Hollywood. Right. And the Coen brothers are stuck on this like dichotomy of like mass marketing entertainment and how pointless it is, and exactly like what you were talking about earlier, about there's actually a deeper value uh, in in pop culture and such. Uh, but all it can really do is reach the lowest common denominator because it's going to constantly uh, take away from itself the ability to have any teeth, to have anything of anything of use, because it makes no statement because it's so worried about insulting or doing all the mass marketing entertainment things. Basically, the Cohen's argument, uh, the general thrust is the Cohen's argument is the same. The picture has no worth, no matter how true. There, in 2016, I think that there was like, in 2016, actually, there was a Ben-Hur recreation film. I believe I'm correct about that. Like there was a Ben-Hur, I think it was just called Ben-Hur. Uh, and it just, no one remembers it. And it was hardly mm -hmm. a hit. Because it was garbage. It didn't try to say anything. It was just rotely doing what Ben-Hur did. 
Uh, I wanted to talk a little bit about movies are the opiate of the masses, because as you hinted at, uh, we kind of, you know, with Clooney's last kind of speech about like all men are equals, we are all men, he didn't treat me as Roman or them as peasants, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, I well, think you also made me realize that opening sequence with the religious figures talking actually probably is more thematically tied in than I thought because mm -hmm. the nature of what is Jesus, is he one thing yes. or is he multiple things? Is God one thing or bipartite or tripartite? How is the power of God's faith divided between those parts if there is multiple parts to the nature of God? Is all those questions can be asked of film as well. So it's even more tied in than I thought it was. Yeah, right. it's no, yeah. and that's that's kind of what I'm sending you up for is their kind of last blow. It's no accident that Clooney's character is still in his Roman costume as he's being swayed by the communists' talks about everyone being equal, right? Uh, and yeah, and through that experience, he finds a place within himself to resonate with the final monologue in his movie where mm -hmm. he's supposed to truly recognize the glory of God. It's right. almost like his, yeah, his coming to realize film matters is his coming, his character in the film he's in, realizing that Jesus is the shit is the same as him, George Clooney, real, Baird Whitlock, realizing that film is the shit, you know? Yep, and... So I want to talk a little bit about the theory of the dialectic, which is something that the Stanford professor repeatedly states, which according, it's kind of like how, how history and mankind kind of moves in a single line. And this is kind of a Marx theory that the events of history are at the whim of class struggle and economics. And the history will repeat so itself. So it's all a straight doomed. line yeah. that will naturally yeah. and eventually end with pure communism, right? That's Marx's yeah. argument. However, in this film, uh, this idea is denied because the movie itself is cyclic. It's not linear. It ends with just as the movie starts, kind of with a confessional and kind of with getting back to business. And that's also visually represented by like Mannix's watch, I thought, uh, is that time just keeps going and going and going. And usually it's, we see a lot of shots of clocks and watches and we're, we're, right. we're and very like enamored Davis, with circles in this movie. If you notice, watch they're it. They're very enamored with circles always. That's kind of true, like, yeah. I mean the hula hoop, but much like the bowling ball. In fact, if you note, listener, we very much leaned into, there's a reason that if you look at all the Coen Brothers Brothers tiles, the logos for each episode, there's a circular motif. Is we think there is a circular, we think there's some, in some way yeah. the Coens are obsessed with the story circle, which then deepens to like, the idea of cyclicality and circles just as a symbol. Um, they seem to be into circles. Yeah. But I think it means think, something with uh -huh. the circle. Well, you wanted to keep going? Uh, I do, but I'll wait. I, I'll wait. I have you one go. last thing I want to get off my chest, which is what I think. So now that those parts are kind of assembled, like we have the circle and the line discrepancy. And the movie is a circle. It begins where it ends. Exactly. It's cyclic. Like it's Davis. kind of got this yeah. Rondo format and stuff like that. And uh, that's, where in, that's why I kind of hinted at uh, in the penultimate scene, Whitlock, uh, says in his speech as Caesar how Jesus is practically a communist and then he forgets the last line or the word, last word which is faith. Now if I had to call what I think the Cohen brothers are saying about this, I think that Caesar is saying that there's a truth behind everything beyond words in light. That's literally what he says in that monologue. We could see it if only we had faith. I think it means only mm -hmm. to say that if you have faith 
that's something like God is perfect, then everything works out for you because whatever you interpret his plan to be, it turns into his path. You know, do this, do that, don't do that, don't do that. It's all what it was ordained to be. And history is a cycle because humans aren't perfect. They're not, we want to believe that God is perfect. If you believe that God is imperfect or you believe there is no God or you believe that history is basically humans running the show, because humans aren't perfect, they rise and they fall, they become loved, then they get hated. Uh, and then they get torn down and new idols become loved and hated and torn down as well. So it is like Karl Marx says, a straight line in that everything is coming, everything's going to pure communism. Everything is going to this place that we wish to be where it's perfect, right? And then once we get mm -hmm. to that point, we've solved it. But the reason that it's cyclic is because we're putting our, like, we're putting our bet on the wrong horse because we just replay the line over and over and over. Uh, it's akin to this Cohen's fascination with how something can be a wave and a particle and how it's uh, hypocrisy in all human enterprises is obvious if, if you just know where to look. Like they love the uncertainty principle for the same reason. They love that stuff can be both be true. And in this case, it's that thing, uh, something can be a line and it can be a circle. Because the well, they love that contradictory stuff can both be true simultaneously. Right, yeah. because Which, a circle is just a line, but it's connected. Is also, you know? well, yeah, time is a flat circle. Exactly. But really, a, a circle is a line if you view it sideways. And I would also say uh, that's the concept of a Cronus and classic infundibulum is a place where two contradictory things mm. can be true simultaneously which connects this podcast canonically to kurt vonnegut's which i wanted to do before we wrap <laughs> we, up. we wrapped up yeah so i think yeah. what they're kind of saying if for my money is that belief is the opiate of the masses and that we, like if they're nihilists like a lot of people accuse them to be or agnostics or atheists or whatever it's because they just believe that there's nothing there's no perfect belief or that all is something's everything's actual, a little broken <laughs> The actual fabric of the universe is either unknowable or illusory yes. in some sense, uh, in the Buddhist sense almost, so that it's not bad. Like, it's not hollow or disingenuous to believe in things that you don't know are true, because at the end of the day, you don't know anything is true. Yeah. Like, what is life? What is it to perceive things and be trapped in this identity for such a brief period of time and then be who knows where with what identity that may dissolve or not? Why now is this the only universe? Like, at the end of the day, we're so awash in a sea of chaos that it's so very I truly believe as a, as a human being living this life I live, I can't ever know shit. Like I'm, I'm not going to, I'm never going to figure any of this shit out. It's yeah. completely beyond our capacity. So would that it were so simple, you know, uh, would that it were so simple, Eddie, would, would that it were so simple, <laughs> would that it were, would that it were, it's complicated. Would, uh, it's complicated. So just as my <laughs> final thought, Eddie Mannix. So when they say Eddie Mannix's story is never over and it's quote written in light everlasting, I think that's two things. I think it means that the tale is written into the fabric of the, like all tales are written in the fabric of the universe and altogether its purpose is undetermined, just like you said, and its solution may just be imperceivable to us forever. But also mm -hmm. light is literally the ink of motion pictures. So it also yeah, is saying course. that movies are forever. Probably more correct to say that stories are forever. That's it. Yes, and also that light, like did you watch uh, Third Rock from the Sun? 
Uh, yeah, a bit. It's that was so long the, ago. Okay. Do you remember by any chance the special episode where John Lithgow has to give a eulogy for a human and he doesn't understand? Oh, he's absolutely not. <laughs> I'm sure it was good. No, though. it's super good because at the end he gives a eulogy where he says, uh, like, so-and-so was just a collection of carbon atoms and water, but arranged in such a unique way that's so rare to find in the universe that he could do things like walk and talk and digest and, and fall in love with people and mm-hmm. come to hate people and forgive people. And then he died, and the material that comprises him will someday be absorbed by the Earth's sun and become nothing but light and be emitted out as a wave across the totality of the entire face of the universe. And everyone weeps, and you're like, that is legitimately an amazing eulogy. Yeah. And, of course, the joke is all the alien family members are like, you that's like a joke eulogy on our planet like right. you gave the you gave the we become stardust eulogy that's fucking yeah. so weak that's and he's like right but humans are dumb and they fall for it and i just think yeah, that's great i think this moment is it's a great moment for a sitcom like holy shit it blew my mind when i was a kid watching third rock but um i think it's, this is a similar moment where they're like everything is light as you said matter boils down to the uncertainty principle and the everything is really by everything is vibrations of Mm -hmm. light essentially vibrations of energy which is just a name for what we perceive as light in its purest form so i think there's an appeal to that and i think that also ties in nicely with vonnegut because one of the wisest things vonnegut ever said was that it's amazing how insignificant something seems like let's say uh, something that felt important. Let's say your uh, the day your child was born or whatever. It's interesting how insignificant that can seem when you consider that the universe is infinite and time is infinite and it doesn't matter, right? You know, like on the aggregate, who gives a shit? Right. You're trapped in this tiny atmospheric envelope of one planet. But then on the other hand, it's interesting to think that as far as we can tell, if time exists substantively, uh, the day your child was born happened and it was so specific that it is a unique event and it always will have happened. And that also cannot be discounted or taken back or overwritten ever, as far as we know. <clears throat> and, like both sides of existence are very fascinating. Yeah, it's it's I mean, that's it's that's the half full half empty kind of taking of it i remember getting in arguments with people about like me being agnostic or an atheist uh Mm -hmm. like saying like how do you care about anything you know because if it all doesn't matter and i always i always go like no like the thought that the universe is so vastly large and it's so out of scale to our understanding doesn't make me feel small as much as it makes me feel kind of large that we're so fucking unique we're free, um, yeah. And we're able to do what we want with our little space, our little notepad in the universe. And it's like, that makes me feel big. And uh, people don't understand that. And I don't understand why people don't understand that. I feel like the Coen brothers understand it. I I do too. And I feel like uh, Neutral Milk Hotel guy. That's <laughs> uh, There's a line in that song that, like, I never hear this elucidated in art as frequently as I'd like, but I think about it all the time. You know that uh, Neutral Milk Hotel song where he says, 
The main thing is how strange it is to be anything at all. To be anything. Yeah, yeah, Why should there be a universe? Why should there be something versus nothing? It's kind of miraculous. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I don't know. remember what that one's called, but it's the one that goes G, C, D, uh, It's C. called In the Airplane Over the That's Sea. That's it. Yeah. That's the one. That's the I one. hope that dude's doing better, man. I know that that band stopped releasing albums because he had like a nervous breakdown. I, I that goes. have no clue. <laughs> I hope he's doing better. Neutral Milk Hotel guy, you're great. Hope you're doing good. Uh, the only other things I have for pedagogy, what do I have here? Uh, mentioned that storytelling is a rubric that we use to deny the fact that life is random chaos. I feel like we organically touched on that already. Yeah, stories, combination of elements into a structure. Yes, and the base thing that you're taking on faith is that such a thing as structure exists or is attainable. Mm. I think it's interesting that people don't question often enough that the fundamental difference between any movie you've ever seen or book you've ever read and how things go in a certain order and at some point they wrap up. Now think about your own real unfiltered experience of this life as it has passed over you. Isn't it just a bunch of random shit at random in almost any sequence? <coughs> <clears throat> sorry but like uh the all these story threads are going on and then randomly you're depressed today then you're happy the next day but you find out a family member died then everything's fine you get in a car accident but you unexpectedly get some money like life is just <laughs> random dude yeah and i think storytelling is very much uh the collective monkey sphere of humanity's way of saying Right, but let's all pretend it's not, because otherwise I won't be able to like plan my day out. Yeah. And <laughs> that's the value storytelling and the faith in storytelling provides to humanity. Um, and I also wanted to say... No, that's all. We touched on everything, which is good. Yeah, yeah. we got to wrap this up. <clears throat> what you said just reminds me of that um, Richard uh, Feynman quote, where he's like, it's not, it's not that like nature is uh complex it's not that complex it's 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 a simple uh series of like it's a very it's a series of very simple phenomena like you know get but there's like a, a lot of them but there's just that's a lot all. of it that's why it's complex lot. it feels <laughs> complex there's just a lot of it and it just reminds me of like yeah that's that's kind of what's going like I, that's the feeling that's behind most of like movies that's why i don't think i'm pushed away when they do stuff like serendipity like just and then suddenly this happens and it's like that's unrelated yeah but like big lebowski is about like them like a group of thugs the reason it happens is a group of thugs go into the wrong house they find the wrong lebowski it's always created out of nothing and it doesn't feel weird or bad or serendipitous in a in a bad writer way where it's like I see on TV on like The Watchmen or something like that. Like we're just like, oh, and then we're going to do this random like fucking narrative excuse of why she's dead now or she isn't dead. Uh, it doesn't feel like the whim of the writers just trying to get a rise out of me. It feels like it's part and parcel to the narrative piece as a whole uh, and how it plays with the structure and how the themes that are at play are almost always about organizing all the details of things in a way that makes sense to somebody doesn't make sense to everybody. 
it's just how the world operates. Some people make the world, like everyone makes the world and views the world in the way that they want to. Nor does it have to, right. We're all born drowning in an ocean full of shipwrecks with a bunch of detritus around us. And all you can do is try and build whatever detritus happened to be around you into a sensible like scaffolding to survive upon. And uh, so you do. And God bless you. Yeah. And I see why people see that as bleak. You don't have to. (laughs) I don't know. That's I'm hoping that that's what the Coen brothers do, because they always end it with like kind of a positive image. Uh, no country may be an exception, but even then they kind of like tip their hands a little bit and say like, yeah, but it just happened. And they're living in the world of another author. So I believe they probably have enough respect to be like, again, no one's right. No one's wrong. Everyone has different perspectives. So if we're going to go ahead and adapt Cormac McCarthy's worldview, let's do honor to what Cormac McCarthy thinks. So I'd argue like no country probably more represents Cormac McCarthy right. ph- philosophically than, Coen than the Coen brothers. Yeah. yeah. I think that's uh, good. Yeah. All right. I have no howdy do that. The you? only thing I want to notice is there was a line that Deacon said in an interview that I thought was beautiful. So quickly, Hail Caesar was the first movie that Deacon shot. Uh, he's back, baby. Uh, he shot on f- film uh, since True Written t- uh, 2010. The Coens themselves said that of the previous movie, Inside Llewellyn Davis, it would probably be their last use of using film instead of video. Uh, but Hill Caesar was so like classic Hollywood that film kind of became an obvious choice. So even as they were like still trying to say like, right. yeah, we're going the way of video. So, Everyone's going the way of but video. But why wouldn't we Buster Scruggs was shot on video. But they're just film. like, come on. <laughs> it's Hail Caesar's got to like be on film. film. That way. And yeah. uh, so Deacon agreed to give it one more try because by this time he's doing Skyfalls. He, he, in his opinion, has been very vocal about like, it's only recently, but we've gotten to the point that digital is just better. Um, yeah. And, Deacons agreed to give it one more try and he quote, and this is why Deacons is so awesome. Just look, look at the wisdom in these words. I don't mind. He recalled saying I'll shoot it on a cell phone. If you'd like ultimately film proved a limited in palette due to the narrowing choices of stocks and processing options in the wake of digital, digital cinematography. He doesn't. And then it goes on to say that he didn't recall encountering those kinds of problems on earlier projects, but, quote, it makes me nervous now. I wouldn't want to do that again, frankly. I don't think the infrastructure's there. <laughs> so it's just him. Once again, it's not like it's not like Tarantino going like, but it's like, but there's just something about film. There's something it, about the sound of vinyl. And he's man. like, yeah, that's true. You can create that. But And that's why we chose to shoot Hail Caesar on, with film. There, It's an obvious choice. But he's also saying, but the you have to deal with the making of the movie. And if there's problems, things like narrowing choices of stocks and processing options, and there's this other tool that's cheaper, more effective, and able to do things that the limited palette of the other thing wouldn't, I'm always going to choose that one. I don't want to choose the film because it would make me nervous. It's just very wise and tempered, and like it's, of course, the main cinematographer that the Coen brothers would collaborate with because those guys are always tempered. So... Yeah, it's shot on film. Another good bit about uh, Mary Zofries, who's the costumer in almost all their films, is it required two hundred and fifty or twenty five hundred f- costumes, including seventeen, one hundred and seventy Roman extras, one hundred and twenty Israelites, and forty five slaves. And about five hundred of the costumes were custom made. And 
they didn't have a big budget, so that meant that Mary Zeofries had to apparently do some of the uh, stitching herself as the costume design budget bloomed. Just kind of, this is, if this is like their, it's not their last film, but if this is their last like main two cinema release, the fact that one of their main collaborators, uh, Mary Zeofries, working in, the, like she's one of the best in the business has to sew things herself because they're all just trying to make the film work is just a testament. You know, it's not George Lucas. We're just like, let's make everyone's life really easy. No, their team, they'll do what everyone they need on to. their team clearly loves the Coen brothers and loves <clears throat> them as artists and their unique vision and wants to seriously be a part of actually digging into the work and enjoys doing it. Yeah, um, and yeah. It's a kind of collaboration. Working on Brothers film, I imagine, reminds you why you got into the business. Yes, you know? it like that they, fact alone. They really enjoy the work. That fact alone, even though I'm probably reading more into it than you know it is, like it almost makes me want to cry as a director. Like to hear those kinds of things that Mary Zofries being who she is. To hear that Mary Zofries would be working a sewing machine to get it right, rather than to save money. Think at this point in her career. There would just be PAs doing that because the budget is whatever. And she's just it, like, oh, no. I went over budget. Okay, well, I'll just do the stitching myself. Makes me go, yeah. fucking A, fucking A. A, yeah, it's rare in this industry where people who have truly made it still do the work themselves. Yeah, apparently <laughs> um, so. Even John Williams, like at this point, farms out composition to a bunch of people like, why not? who know You're how older. to compose exactly like John Williams. Yeah. yeah. I get it. I get it. Um. Yeah, that's all. That's all for me. From we went from A to Zofrays, and now the show's over. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> what do you want to do mm-hmm. now? Oh, also, I wanted to point out uh, John Daly appears as the policeman in the beginning of this movie. Oh yeah, which officially connects Coen Brothers Brothers to Comedy Bang Bang. So the CBBs have finally connected. They've connected. Their peens have touched. As have the BBCs. Yeah, you took the joke I was going to go for. All right. <laughs> All right. Um, yeah, and the BCCs. Do you want to do a quick ranking? Okay. We've gotten some requests to do that. Should we make a yeah, different episode yeah. for that? Or let's, I mean, I said we would, so let's do it real quick. Let's do it quick. This is taking too long, but, but let's do it. Yeah, let's do it yeah. quick. Uh, how do you want to do um, this? Do so, you want to go... Like, do you want to go first, from last yeah. place to first place? Well, first of all, thanks everyone for listening. It's been fun, et cetera, et cetera. Look, if you don't know, we love you by this point. You haven't been paying attention. Uh, and now that we're almost three hours into this episode about Hail Caesar, probably the lightest, most inconsequential Coen Brothers movie other than maybe Lady Killer. I just can't say um, it goodbye, though. I don't want to. I know. It's also, I do think it's a mark against it. Like, I'm mildly annoyed by the inside baseball nature of movies like The Artist, La La Land, and I think Hail Caesar oh, yeah. falls yeah. into that. It's like... it's Marriage story. Yeah, it's kind of lame at the end of your career to make a movie about how great Hollywood is, because you're like, look, obviously you love Hollywood. It's your whole life and career. Make another movie about you know, Fargo <laughs> or whatever. But anyway, uh, I just wanted to shit on the Coen brothers on the way out. Cause that's what this podcast is all about. And you do the hokey pokey, you turn yourself around. <laughs> Let's rank the movies now. 
Um, nice. We'll go one to eighteen or however many. How about that? And we'll say yeah. A couple I forget, but they're all listed why. in front of me. <clears throat> Should we go? So we're gonna go from what our last place is to our first place, right? Oh, you're right. That's, that's way better for tension. That's yeah. way better. Yeah. Okay. So you want to go first or I, second? Uh, I'm gonna go first and okay. Lady Killers. Lady Killers is your last place. Yes. My last place is the man who wasn't there. Ooh. Are we speaking a why or are we just ranking? We can. Uh, we can. I, I think I mean, for, it'll take us a few before we can really start to talk of like why you put that there or that. So I don't need to talk about it every time. I would argue that if you want to know the why of it all, listen to that episode. Like you get, you get one to three hours of the person expressing how they feel about that film. Yeah. I could just rank yeah. them, honestly. Uh, yeah, I, I thought I, I, I found my, I found, I surprised myself with that when I had to really go like, all right, this versus this one. Okay. But I'm saying for a bunch of them, I don't have any, I don't need to explain that. I didn't explain fully in the episode. Yeah. Yeah. I think the only explanations are when it's completely out of left field. Yeah. I don't find man who wasn't there at the bottom of the list. Being like shocking. Okay. Shocking. Yeah. So, uh, okay. Uh, my, so. Well, two. hold on. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight. There's eighteen total. Yeah. So number seventeen. And you included you included uh uh Buster. What's yeah. the name? Buster. Yeah. yeah. There's eighteen total. So okay, we just said number eighteen. So now number seventeen, Abe. Seventeen. Uh, intolerable cruelty. Fuck you. <laughs> Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Fuck you, dude! <laughs> I'm upset with you, Lady mm-hmm. Killers. Okay, okay, you're upset God with me. God damn you! How uh, dare like Ocean's you? Eleven? They're saying they can bank on actor charisma and good Ocean's like, Eleven flow. is garbage <laughs> compared to. It, it makes your movie go. They're culture. not wrong. It makes your movie go. The charisma and the editorial flow of that movie is impeccable. It's just at the bottom of my list. Sixteen. The Ballad of Buster Scruggs. God, I hate you now. Is this how we want it in the show as enemies? Yes. Um, Blood Simple. And then only because the elements are so spare because of what they were working with. I still think their talent is on display. All right, go ahead. Uh Uh Uh-huh. 15. Uh, Blood Simple. (laughs) I'm hoping we'll match up at some point. My 15 is Hail Caesar. Okay. 14. Okay. Uh, the man who wasn't there. <laughs> All right, good. Okay, so as brackets were very similar, but they're like mixed. Yeah, up yeah, here we just. Yeah. We, I think that's how it was always going to be. There's nothing about this really surprising. My 14 me. is the Ballad of Buster Scruggs. Uh, okay. 13. This will be the same. Hail Caesar. Okay, good. Okay, this all makes sense, except I think Intolerable Cruelty is way higher. That's the one disagreement so far. Um, okay. This is the one I, the first one I said I think you might react to emotionally. My uh, 18, 17, 16, 15. My 13. This is when I started having to make like tough rough choices. Decisions. Me too. You know? My number 13 is Miller's Crossing. 13. I thought 13 was. I thought we're. I thought Miller's Crossing. Or I thought we're on 12 right now. No, we're on 13. I'm sure. 
Which one did Silence I Silence for me. 18, the man who was, for me. 18, the man who wasn't Ladies there. Killers. 17, Lady Killers. 16, Blood Simple. Protein. 15, Hail Caesar. 14, Ballad of Buster Scruggs. 13, Miller's Crossing. Blood Simple. Man who wasn't there. Hail Caesar, I guess, is 13 for me. Okay. Um, 12 for me is True Grit. Miller's Crossing. <laughs> I want to sync up. Um, I want our octagonal peens to lock together. I know. <laughs> number, we're, gonna lock, number, we, we're never going to lock down. We're never going to lock number down. Number 11 for happen. me. Intolerable cruelty. Uh, Burn after reading. <laughs> That's okay. I forgive you. Number yeah. 10, Barton Fink. Ooh, that's fine. True grit. So we like we're we're doing this dosy dough. That's like what every I mean three we are tied up now. Our but we're not always in, we're never the, the same. same though. Yeah. <laughs> like it would be surprising to me if we were both like number five and we both have the same movie. Yeah. That that would be weird to me now at this point. Number nine. Well, that's closer we get. Burn number nine, yeah. Barton Fink. Burn after reading. Yep, it's happening. It's happening. It's happening. Our peens are slowly touching. <laughs> number eight. You're gonna hate me. Huh. A serious man. Oh. I'm really upset. I know. <laughs> I'm upset. I, know. I can't I'm believe really you have intolerable cruelty and <laughs> I can't believe you have intolerable cruelty still here, right? Or have what? you named it yet? No, my name. You named when was yours intolerable cruelty? Uh well, one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine. Eleven isn't tall for me. Okay, it was eleven. That's, okay, that's what I thought. Whew. My number eight is Raising Arizona. Ooh. Um, yeah, because it looks like it was shot seven. on video a little bit in a way that I think dates it. Uh, yeah, a serious man. I think I, the the film understands crisis to the most minute level, but it's not a it's. It's not about stakes, and it's not about how life actually is. Uh, that takes it down a notch to me. Like a serious man is trying to say, "Well, I don't know." It's poetic, I don't magical talk down. realism. If it's you're in the top ten realism. of a Coen Brothers movie, there's nothing I'm going to talk shit on. But like the ones before it are doing so clearly what I just think. Like at this point now, they're doing like the best version of the Coen Brothers, oh and there's like eight Coen Brothers Rolling films or seven so Coen Brothers films. <laughs> you're completely wrong. Okay. Um, number seven <laughs> the Hudsucker proxy no country for old men oh wow that is um, an upset sir is it i think uh, i no believe country... on the no country for old men podcast you said you were going to probably put it like one or two i've watched it three more times since we recorded that podcast and while i find it very monolithic and interesting for the ways in which it disrupted the forms of storytelling that are popular at this time in human history. I think it's overrated overall. Yeah. I ended up thinking, I think you're, you're making hot takes. Just well, my takes, point man. is I think there are six better Coen brothers movies and you're about to that hear what the they argument. are. Yeah. <laughs> that is the setup. I yeah. think it's very, 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 very good and vital as a piece of art, but I think there's six things Ooh. the Coen brothers did that are even better. <laughs> Ooh, all right. All right, number six. All right. What do you got? Raising Arizona. Oh, brother, where art thou? Oh, <laughs> well, it's getting less and less because now we're like top six. So it's yeah, like. Yeah, top five, baby. They're basically the same now. Top five. Number five. Inside Llewellyn Davis. Inside Llewellyn Davis. We got one. We, we got one. <laughs> number five. We touched. 
Inside Lewin okay, Davis so, is number five. So No Country is out for you. So I still have, okay, I want to do this. Did you say five yet? Yeah, yeah Inside yeah, Lewin Davis. So, so here's what I want to do. For me, what's still available, and I'm in no, no particular no, no. order. People not, no? It's too accessible. That ruins the surprise. Let's go fast so people aren't <sighs> predicting what we're going to do. Okay, okay. All right, okay. number four. God, I'm excited. <laughs> Fargo. Hudsucker Proxy. Yep. Uh, probably, in my opinion, the most underrated Coen Brothers movie. It bombed at the time. I don't understand why. It's a goddamn masterpiece. You got Academy Awards. Yeah, but it financially. Can. All right. Their career continued, so I guess what am I bitching mm-hmm. on their behalf about? Number three. <laughs> oh, brother, where art thou? Fargo. Number two. No Country for Old Men. The, I can't believe I know what it is. The Big Lebowski, because we're comedians. Um, I wow. think it's important that a comedy rank high. Number one. Number one. What's your number one? The Big Lebowski. A Serious Man. And oh, wow. What an interesting twist that this podcast that seemed so much centered on our friendship at the last second would ruin our friendship. Um, yeah, right. I will talk to you never. <laughs> Goodbye. <Yeah>. End of series. <laughs> <laughs> Wait, we have to make another web show. We have to make another podcast, though. <laughs> oh shit! Okay, but How yeah, we're gonna do that. I believe I said in the Serious Man episode, it's a strong contender for my number one, and I and it, I remain in that place. I really love. Man, I love magical realism. Like my favorite book of all time it's is A Hundred so Years good. of Solitude. So like, I don't need it to be realistic. I like that the tornado comes and it makes no sense. I like that he gets cancer and it makes no sense. It's uh-huh. fine to me because I feel like in that movie, the Coen brothers transcended reality and they're like, look, 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 look. We all know movies are fake. So I'm God. I'm just telling you a sequence mm-hmm. of images. You're supposed to derive the meaning from it. It's a parable. You don't have to pretend this really happens. What the fuck are we doing here? It's a movie. Of course it didn't really happen. Right. Boom. Yeah. Yeah. What's and your it's argument? not about stakes as I was saying. Well, yeah. I, I mean the biggest, I'd rather talk about like the, the big, which a serious man is definitely in that the biggest upsets. Like I have an, a serious man at eight. You have at one, uh, you have a brother pretty early and I have that. It's still at three. Uh, but more or I less have it we're, at six. Yeah. That's not too far, but that's like the bigger, uh, like it's such a fun movie to me. Um, biggest but yeah, upset on man, me is that no country fell a lot in my esteem. Yeah. So that's what I was going to say about it. If that, that was an upset to me that you put new country so low as well. And the same kind of thing happened to me for a serious man. Mm-hmm. When it came out, I, I lost my shit. I watched it a second time. I had to buy the Blu-ray lost my shit watching it with the critical eye of like doing this series. I don't know if it, I, it's not that I lost the zest for it. It's just like the mechanizations that were at play are done in a lot of their other movies. So it didn't feel like it was adding new things. It just was like more polished. And I don't know what about me thinks that like, yeah, but there was like, even though the man who wasn't there didn't do like the uncertainty principle aspects as well as a serious man, it's not a thought that was like fresh to me at the time. Yeah, I would argue that the man who wasn't there was their attempt to grapple with nihilism, and then they realized that it, they didn't quite nail it, so they looked for the book that they thought most most represented what they were trying to say, and they found No Country, and they made that. And then they went on to make Serious Man, where they tried again to do their version of what they meant, and it finally mm-hmm. came out perfect. 
it, it really but is. But it is iterative. Impressive. Yeah. That's why I put it at eight, though, and I had the comment about, like, there's, like, seven types of films. Because, like, Hudsucker Proxy, Raising Arizona, Inside Llewellyn Davis, Fargo. Like, these are all types. These are all unique types of films that the Coen brothers make. None of them feel like another. I love how Fargo, uh, for everyone, is, like, it is, like, Peter Stormare in Fargo. It's or it's like the Looney Tunes where the dog and fox just check in and out of work. Fargo, everyone's like, yeah, it's one of the best movies ever. Salute as you pass. Nothing to say about it. It's just a fucking hammer dropping into it, the scene. It feels like a no country <laughs> rehearsal to me. Yeah. Like visually oh, they put rehearsal. down their mark here. It's the movie that made them. I like Fargo better than No Country. Yeah, I thought No Country was better than Fargo. All right. Well, we hate each other. I think other. it just hit me in <laughs> one of the in, in a way that none of the others did. You're it's such a Joel, dude. I'm I'm dude, Ethan, you're... and you're such a Joel. That's the thing. You think you're Ethan? You think you're? You Ethan. think you're Ethan? <laughs> you get the fuck out of here. That makes me chuckle in a in an Ethanish way. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Um, we're such nerds, dude. We are such nerds. Yeah, we're embarrassing ourselves. We well, should get out of here. I don't want to talk about it anymore. I'm just glad we did it because they yeah. wanted us to do it. Uh, I don't care. Ranking is the least interesting. Ranking's thing pretty to me. stupid. <laughs> yeah. yeah. I mean, it's fun. But no, but it's like that, you know how people are like, well, it's like apples and oranges, and they say like, well, why would you compare Fargo to Big Lebowski? Right. I would yeah. also say. Why would you compare any unique piece of art to any other unique piece of art? It just is what mm -hmm. it is. It's whatever your experience was with it. There's, it's almost yeah. pointless. Ranking. Yeah, it's an old, pure ranking. That's I mean. like an old hat at this point to say. And at the same time, the number one things that do well, you know, in terms of like movie, movie criticism is like, we rank the top 10 yeah. Coen Brothers. You know, it's like, oh, fuck. Well, that's because Crack established the listicle pattern and now everyone's addicted. Yeah, I understand. We're sorry, guys. It's a, um, it's a stupid thing. <laughs> cracked is, there's, but there are like blocks of data metrics that track how Crack's popularity made other sites adopt top X whatever, and now we're stuck with it as a format. <laughs> Mm -hmm. I mean, you could trace it back to David Letterman, but whatever. Uh, let's get yeah, into right. going away. <laughs> I have other yeah, shit let's to just do. do the. Uh, I don't <laughs> want to do any of this anymore. Uh, yeah, let's kind of. Uh, so the final thing we promised before we leave is we wanted to do kind of a teaser announcement because now that this is kind of ending, it's ending. Uh, it's over. We still want to do a deep dive. We've been saying that forever. I think there's never going to be a time in Small Beans that we're not. Like maybe on hiatus here or there on it, but like if if you know the schedule aligns in a, a bad way, but ultimately we're always going to want to do a deep dive. That's you know Michael and I, and um, I think that we've determined what we want our next one to be, and uh, I think we want to make the announcement. Do you want to make the announcement, Michael? Yeah, uh, yeah. We we're doing. Uh Kings of Kennedy, right? All the works of Jamie Kennedy? No, no, you fucking know right here. <laughs> oh. Um, yeah, we'll be doing a show following this show called Kings of King, which will cover every, <laughs> eventually, uh, every filmed or televised piece of work that is an adaptation of something written by Stephen King, the most adapted storyteller of all time. Because basically, we discussed 
direct other directors that we admire and think are auteurs who hit at every level, like P.T. Anderson or, uh, you know, your Kubricks or Kubrick whatever whoever you or... want to talk about, Herzog. But uh, in every case, we feel like we already did the best ones. Like, I, I honestly do think the Coen brothers are the best of anyone we could talk about at, at that level. So yeah. we were trying to think of a different angle on storytelling that deserves unpacking. And we also love horror. We don't get to talk about it enough. And we realized, you know, Stephen King has a very special place in the storytelling pantheon of humanity. Uh, obviously, he mostly writes words on a page, but he storytells in a very accessible way that in an almost Spielbergian way has become the grammar of our storytelling, like shared collective consciousness. And as I've already said several times, as a result is the most adapted into film of anyone who's ever put pen to paper. So mm-hmm. it's, going to be different than this one because you don't have that quality bar, right? We're going to cover things that adapt Stephen King's stories well, and we're going to cover instances where uh, the movie fucking sucks, and we're going to unpack why the movie fucking sucks. But we're generally going to try to do so in such a way that's illuminating about the filmmaking process uh, and human nature and all the kind of shit you've come to expect from us. So yeah, that's the one, King of Kings, about the works of Stephen King yeah. as they appear in film and television. It won't be chronological. Yeah, and I think it's we should it say. won't be chronological. We're just kind of kind of pick them at whim. Uh, that's kind of the goal. That's the plan now. I think it's. I'm hoping it's going to be good because I think coming from the directorial side and you coming from the writer side, not that we'll inhabit those positions forever into uh, yeah. perpetuity, just that. Um, I think that that's a good mix of like trying to say we're we're not going to necessarily read all the books. Uh, if we've had read them, we'll talk about them. Um, people who have read the books, feel free to like you know learn us on it. But like ultimately, we're going to talk about the films, and we're going to talk about how the story, like the vision behind the storytelling, and what makes Stephen King tick, is part. That's that's basic part of the yeah don't read don't you don't need to read we won't have read that i I mean it's about the filmed material it's about the film i'm actively encouraging you not one of us will have read it yeah (laughs) yeah you know you you guys don't need to read don't read Uh, don't read uh just listen (laughs) listen to things just listen yeah uh yeah and i also like it that i like this choice because the uh the uh acronym for it is k-o-k and that's A-OK, as far as I'm concerned. And that's concerned. A-OK. Cock uh, is A-OK. You heard it here last mm-hmm. and first. And Stephen King is the next focus. Uh, yeah, and like like Gabe said, we'll pick based on sort of what, what we want to teach you that episode or what topics we want to unpack. So yeah. there's no way for you to predict what to watch ahead of time. We, If you go to our Patreon, patreon.com slash smallbeans, we might start broadcasting ahead of time what we're going to cover i think so people can yeah yeah can pre-watch but before but we try to make this as much as we could in terms of once per month so uh just so everyone knows expect about at some point soon starting some point soon about once a month we're we're gonna bring you some cock and if you enjoyed this look at the coen brothers please that's all good job (laughs) we did it so fucking long oh i guess i remember go to itunes and give us five stars and a review that that'll be great that hey 
That would be great. It would be great. I found out it really helps us get exposed to new listeners, so it's great. It is. Yeah. Anything you guys can do in terms of that, just help us out. Please. So, I'm please. dying here. All right. Just dying. All right. Well, that's it. Jesus. Okay. I'm like, I have, I can't even see straight. That was so long. That it's was like longer than I thought three hours. it would be. I'm of at course. 259 and a half. Yeah, exactly. Let's hang out until we're at three hours. Yeah, that's a good call. Because then, we'll then we can say. It. Then we can say. It. Then we can say we our finale was three hours. I got eighteen seconds left. Although, you know, when I come in and edit this, it's gonna be ruined. So should we go to like three hours and ten seconds? Three hours and ten. I think we're gonna probably cut out more than ten seconds. I can't wait. Out. I can't sit I here can- for five minutes. No, I mean either. I have nothing to talk about All right. either. Well, then people just know that as of this recording, my timestamp is currently three hours and ten seconds. Yeah, and if you're not you seeing that, you know, that's your fucking problem. We went for that's three it. hours. Maybe I'll just run like some like ads. <laughs> Please. Yeah. Know. If the cut ends up not being three hours, put in any random soundscape or ambience recorded off free sound to fill it to three hours. Oh, that's that? a great idea. Okay, great. That's a great idea. Right. I'm going to do it even if it doesn't. Yeah. So everyone enjoy whatever sound Abe decided to put at the end here and we'll see you next time. Shot me! Oh.